You refer to a lot of these KKK Klansmen as your friend. Are they really your friends or are they more acquaintances you get along with? Both. In the beginning, there was one clan and chapters of that clan spread all over the place. Today, there is no such thing as the Ku Klux Klan because of all the infighting. And what I realized that right after Martin Luther King was assassinated, I just didn't know why. Why do people hate you when they don't know you? Chuck you had Berry. worked with Chuck Berry for 30 plus years. I played all the hits with him. What are your thoughts on Jackie Wilson? Oh man, one of the greatest singers of all time. And for some reason, he's not as famous as Elvis, as Chuck Berry. There's a reason why. Tell me why. The reason is racist. There were no black idols on TV. Why are black people so angry towards you? I'm sitting down talking with the enemy. I'm talking with the oppressors. If you want to be heard, then you have to hear the other people too. So I allowed them to speak, and then they allowed me to be heard. And over time, they realized, you know what, I need to change my direction. That's how you're able to sit down with these racist KKK members and listen to them. The Grand Dragon Roger Kelly. You two became so close, he named you the godfather of his daughter. Yeah, he did. Racism you're not born with. It's learned. Our guest today is an American blues and rock and roll musician, author, and activist. Perhaps he is best known for his work to improve race relations in America by speaking with Klansmen to spark a new mindset that eventually enables them to leave the KKK and start a new life. I'm honored to introduce to our audience, Daryl Davis. Mr. Davis, welcome to Valuetainment. Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here. It's like, I'm excited uh, beyond words for, uh, to be speaking with you today. So That's what I wanted to do, thank you. What I wanted to do is sort of uh, start the conversation and frame the conversation with what I interpret as sort of your overarching theme um, and really agenda when you do what you do. And what I would take from that is this, that the overall theme is how can you hate me without even knowing me? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. How can you hate me if you don't even know me, to be exact, uh, to use the exact quote? Um, explain that, how that mindset really entered your life. Well, it started when I was uh, pelted by uh, rocks and bottles and soda pop cans during a parade in, in which I was 10 years old and I was the only black child uh, participating in this parade, while the, the vast majority of the, of the uh, audience, you know, lining up the sidewalks and streets and stuff uh, were white. Uh, I didn't have any problems, and I'd never had any problems in my life up until that point. We reached one point in the parade, and all of a sudden I was getting hit. And I was marching with the Cub Scouts. Now, because I, I didn't have prior experience in this, my first thought was, oh, those people over here on the sidewalk don't like the Scouts, you know? so. I didn't realize I was the only one being targeted until my scout leaders you know, ran over and covered me with their bodies and escorted me out of the danger. I kept asking them why, why are they hitting me? I didn't do anything. And all they would do is just kind of shush me and rush me along, telling me everything would be okay. So I had no clue until I got home. Mm -hmm. And my parents who were not present uh, during the parade, you know, were asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? You know, they thought I tripped or something. And I told them what had happened, and they sat me down and explained to me why this happened. And that was the first time I'd even ever heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. Now, that's because 
my background, my parents were U.S. Uh, Foreign Service. So we spent a lot of time overseas and I grew up as an American embassy brat. Mm -hmm. So I attended international schools. Uh, this is back in the early 60s. And my classes over there uh, were full of kids from all over the world because anybody who had an embassy in that country, all of their kids went to the same school. So, you know, I look here, there's a little kid from Czechoslovakia, a kid from Japan, a kid from Russia, a kid from France, Germany, Switzerland, Nigeria, wherever. All different shapes and sizes. All different shapes and sizes and shades of color. And that was my norm. Hmm. That, that's, that's all I knew, you know? Now, while people may have had funny accents or, or they didn't all speak English, and I certainly didn't speak, you know, Czechoslovakian or Japanese or whatever, we all got along. We all worked together, we played together, we had slumber parties, you know, it was my norm. And it wouldn't be until I would come home that my norm changed. And here's what's, uh, what's inter uh, interesting about it, Adam. I remember as a kid, you know, we had TV and this is, uh, it was black and white TV. And then, you know, a few years later, it was color TV. And that was a whole different world. You know, it just like opened up. Uh, sort of like, I guess, going today from, you know, uh, one-dimensional, two-dimensional to three-dimensional or something. Color TV was it. But when I would come home from the from an overseas assignment of my parents, come back home, it was like going from, from technicolor to black and white. <laughs> it was the reverse. Because when I would come home, I would be in either all black schools or black and white schools, depending upon whether I was still in the uh, still segregated or the newly integrated school. And in the newly integrated school, it was just black kids and white kids. There was not the, the vast diversity of colors and shades that I had overseas, because diversity had not really come to this country at that point. And let me ask you something, Daryl. This was what, mid-60s in the Boston area? Where was this exactly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it was, um, well, you know, I would, you know, I would come every two years. So uh, no matter where I was, in Virginia, in DC, in Boston, but the Boston thing you're talking about, uh, Belmont, right outside of Boston, was 1968. Okay. And, and at that point, I was one of two black children in the entire school. I was age 10, and I was in fourth grade. It was a little black girl in second grade. So consequently, uh, all of my friends were white. And uh, it was those um, male friends who invited me to join the Cub Scouts. Let me ask you, uh, Mr. Davis, can I, can I call you Daryl? Are yeah, we, call me Daryl. Daryl or DD, or we talked about uh, Triple D. Uh, he, he, any of the above. Double D. Yeah. Uh, Daryl, and what's your middle name again? Dwight. Daryl Dwight Davis, Triple D. That's I it. love it. Amazing. Yeah. Double D, Triple D. So let, let's take it back. Before we kind of go deeper on this, let's take you back to being 10 years old. It's 1968, and they had to have the talk with you, right? Yes, they did. Um, you were 10 years old. Would you explain what the talk was and what that talk still is today that black parents have to have with their kids what is the talk okay well at that particular age uh it was that you know you are capable of being anything you want to be you know don't let anybody tell you that you can't be anything that you want to be you work hard you be honest you know you have you have patience you have discipline uh, you can you can achieve anything, and uh, but at the same time, be aware that you know that there are people who simply 
you know, do not like you uh, because of the color of your skin. Now, the, the problem with that was the fact that I didn't believe my parents. And what do you mean you didn't believe them? Just because you had never experienced racism, so you thought they were lying? What did you think it was? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe they were lying. I didn't know why, uh, because, you know, they never lied before. So why are they lying now? Hmm. And so you remember was, thinking that at age 10, like my parents have oh, never yeah, lied absolutely. before, but all of a sudden yeah. they're lying to me after this Cub well, Scout because, incident. Because I was an only child. So I didn't have, you know, a lot of my friends had brothers and sisters, young or older, and, you know, uh, whose experiences were passed down, you know, to, to the younger siblings. And so I didn't have that. So whenever I had an issue, a problem, a question, uh, the only people I could go to were my parents. And my parents always uh, either solved the, uh, the question or, or problem for me or gave me the tools by which I could do it. And they, it always worked. It was always truthful. It was always, it always made sense. But this time when they were explaining what the problem was to me, because I couldn't figure it out, uh, or I had the wrong answers. I just thought people would just, you know, uh, I didn't know why they didn't like me. I thought maybe because I'm the new kid on the block or something, because I've only been there a couple months. So when they were explaining to me this time, I didn't have reason to believe them because the people who were doing this to me looked exactly like my friends. My friends right there in school in Belmont, or my friends from the American Embassy overseas, or my little German friends, my Finnish friends, my Swedish friend, my Australian friends. So and they, they had the same color of skin. So, and I was the same color, you know, associated with them as I was on the streets of Belmont, Massachusetts. I, I didn't understand the problem because I had not grown up here. I already had good experiences with people who looked like the people hmm. who were um, perpetrating this, uh, this violence upon me. So why would I think that was color of my skin? So it sounds it like, no sense. it sounds like this talk that your parents had with you was very uplifting, meaning you can be anything you want to be, Daryl. You can do anything you want to do. Anything is possible. I asked you initially about this talk. What do you think that talk sounds like today that parents have with their kids? Is it the same thing? Is it different? Is it more regarding police? Is it still about racism? Is it uplifting? What's that it talk is, like today? It is, uh, well, it depends upon the parents, of course, too, because there are some parents who tell you know, their kids, you know, you'll never amount to anything or whatever. But uh, the talk is always based upon race, and and the, the degree to which it's based upon race varies as the child gets older. Because, for example, uh, that same talk, you know, I, I went back overseas, you know, after that school year, and I was back to what I call normalcy. I was around everybody, we all got along, etc. But every time I would come home, there would be some racist incident that involved me. Uh, the talk uh, continued but it was revisited at the age of 16 when I began driving. And I was told by my parents, you know, look, you know, there's a possibility, you know, you'll be pulled over by the police. Uh, and I understood now, you know, that people do judge you by the color of your skin. Uh, by age 16, I, you know, I realized, you know, this is a real thing. Well, I realized it right after Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated. I just didn't know why. Why do people hate you when they don't know you? But I realized it, it does go on. So by the age of 16, I'm being told by my parents, you know, that the police may pull you over. And even if you're not doing anything wrong, be polite, be respectful, keep your hands on the wheel, do exactly as they tell you. Even if they give you a ticket and you know you were not doing whatever it is, you know, they told you you were doing, just take the ticket, sign it, 
we'll take care of it. We'll go to court. We'll, you know, do whatever. Unless, you know, you were speeding or you were running a red light or whatever. Um, so, you know, I had that. And and were you ever pulled while, over? Oh, many times. Really? Many times. I, I still am. I still am. And, and okay. my father was uh, was pulled over quite, quite a number of times. You know, we live, we were the second family to, second black family to move into our neighborhood uh, when I was around that age. And uh, it was a brand new neighborhood right outside of uh, D.C. Because, you know, my father had, you know, worked at the State Department, uh, worked for the State Department. And, uh, you know, he, he drove a Mercedes and the cops would pull him over in our own neighborhood thinking that uh, he walked in and drove out. And, and then, you know, when I began driving, the same thing was happening to me. You know, I, I must have walked in that neighborhood and driven somebody's car out, stole a car. Were you, were you driving your father's Mercedes? Did you have your own no, car no, at the time? No, no, he, no, he would not let me drive his car. Oh. Not because he thought I was gonna wreck his car, but because he knew that, and, and, that's, and that's another thing, you know, I, I didn't quite understand. Uh, I believed him, but I sort of felt, you know, maybe he wasn't letting me drive because he didn't want me driving his Mercedes, mm -hmm. right? But what it was, was he, he, he knew, uh, you know, that a young black, you know, black boy, age 16, driving around in Mercedes, uh, just, you know, was, was going to draw the attention mm -hmm. of the police. But the kids in my neighborhood, they had fancy cars. So what were you driving? I was driving a Chevrolet Impala. All right. <laughs> I'm feeling that. Yeah, but I still got pulled over. <laughs> There's something important about that year, 1968, that you're talking about, because that is also the year that America was just basically burning down. That was the same year that MLK was shot, that Bobby Kennedy. Right. Yes. So I remember you told a story. This is the documentary. I think Accidental Courtesy is the name, right? Yes. Uh, which I've watched several times. You told a story that you were watching, I believe, I Dream of Genie. No, actually, it's the other one, Bewitched. Bewitched. How could I get yeah. those two wrong? They're two, basically, yeah. uh, you're watching Bewitched. They, they, they both are beautiful women. Yes. Uh, Elizabeth Montgomery and Barbara Eden. Facts. So you were watching uh, Bewitched, um, and breaking news came on. Walter Cronkite came on and basically announced that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And you're the one that told your father the news, correct me if I'm wrong, and he broke down crying. And this was actually the first time that you saw your father crying. Tell me about that uh, moment. I didn't understand it. Uh, first of all, I didn't really know who Martin Luther King was at the time. Really? Uh, I, yeah, I, you know, I spent you know, a lot of my formative years overseas. And so you know, we weren't having you know, civil rights marches and all that kind of thing over there. Uh, so, but when um, I, you know, it, it happened in the middle of my program, and usually um, it was something significant, you know, that everybody could relate to whenever a, a newscaster, you know, burst into the middle of a program. And since I didn't know who MLK was, I didn't understand, you know, people, you know, die all the time. I didn't understand the significance of it as to why this could not wait for the six o'clock news. Why did it have to, you know, burst into my program? Why are you messing up my bewitched favorite program? Precisely. So, but I figured it had to be something important and maybe I just didn't know who it was. So I went and told my father, maybe, maybe he would know. And as soon as I mentioned it, he was in, in his little office typing. And as soon as I mentioned it, his hand, I mean, his head fell into his hands. And he was like, oh no, 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 no. You know, and he was like, I'm not gonna, what's going on here? 
and he began sobbing about it. And I just did not understand that. I'd never, you know, I'd seen my mom cry. I'd never seen my dad cry. Um, but you know, who is this person that, you know, that's making, you know, my father cry? You know, what, what is it? It's not a relative, you know? And so he began explaining all the things that uh, MLK had done. Uh, he had also marched with uh, MLK. Your father has? So, yes. yes wow. He had. And, um, you know, I... So I it was something going on in your head that you knew something was way off. Your father's crying, breaking news. Something is different going on. Even at age 10, yeah, you seemed like I, you were I, very I, innocent at that time. I Did something change within you at that point? Uh, no, not not right then. Um, I just understood that, you know, this, this person was, was a very significant person, but I wasn't feeling it because I, I still didn't know. But... Uh, that evening, things began burning, you know, and, and a lot of violence and rioting. And um, it was just crazy. And, and, and everything changed. And then I began feeling it because my world changed. Uh, as I explained a few minutes ago, uh, all of my friends uh, were white, okay? And the next, the next day, um, April 5th, because he was assassinated on the 4th. Uh, we went to, we, we lived in Boston initially, well, when we first returned. My father was, was working on, on his, um, on his uh, master's degree at, uh, at BU, Boston University. So we lived nearby. And uh, we went, you know, we went down into Boston and picked up some of my friends from the first school that I went to. The school was so bad that we had to move to the suburbs. It was so behind. So we moved to the suburbs for, for better schooling. That's why we were in Belmont after, after you know, almost weeks after I started school. So we went and picked up some friends of, of, of mine, my little classmates from Boston, and brought them out to Belmont to stay at our home because things were just too dangerous in Boston. Buildings were burning down everywhere. People were fighting in the streets, looting, and all kinds of craziness. And so I saw that firsthand. And, and all in the name of this new word that I had learned a couple months prior called racism. So, uh, you know, my world was beginning to change, but the real changes occurred because, you know, as, as a 10-year-old kid, you know, you have lots of friends and you play and you get together after school, after your homework, you go outside and play with them, all that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? Uh, all of my friends being white in Belmont, uh, some of them were no longer allowed to play with me not by my, by my parents, but by their parents. And their parents had always been very nice to me. Uh, I'd come over to their home, and if they were eating, their parents would invite me in and fix me whatever their kid was eating. And I would sit at the table, eat with them, and then we'd go outside and play. Same thing that they were to my house. My mom would give them whatever I was having. You know, and there, there was no you know, color issue. And now all of a sudden, I'm being told when I knock on the door, oh, uh, you know, little Johnny can't come out. You know, he, he's staying in. He's staying in today. You know, for no reason. That know. was right after 1968. You're saying, like, right so after it was, the next, it was the next day. The next day. The next. Wow. Day. Okay. Uh, and then half an hour later, I see the guy down at the park, and I'd be like, I, I thought you couldn't come out. Uh, no, um, my mom doesn't want me playing with him anymore. The kid straight up told you that. Yeah. Wow. And uh, and I, I I say why? I I don't know. Yeah, she just doesn't. Uh, and the kid didn't even know. Wow. Right, he didn't know, okay? Uh, in retrospect, I understand it, you know, because we lived in a duplex. Uh, the landlady lived on, you know, downstairs, and we lived upstairs, and there were two front doors right on the front of the house. 
hers and ours. Ours went straight upstairs. We had all that space there. Uh, now, at the age of 10, you know, I, I thought of her as an old lady. I don't know how old she was. She may have been 30. <laughs> you know. I just turned 40, Daryl. You're making me feel horrible. Well, yeah, we, we, we got to figure, you know, at age 10, you'd be ancient right. at 40. Right? So, <laughs> so uh, you know, but, you know, she was probably my parents' age, maybe a little bit older. Uh, you know, young by today's standards, you know, in any, any regard. But uh, but at age 10, yeah, anybody over, over 15 was probably old. Um, anyway, she owned the house, and we had a big porch. And sometimes my friends and I, play on the porch, set up little army soldiers or whatever you know, we did. There was no line going down the center of the porch that designated my side and her side. And she was super nice. If she made cookies, she always bring us some, give it to me and my friends on the porch or whatever. Well, guess what? Just the next day or the day after whatever, you know, following day, uh, we were playing on the porch and she came out and she said, Daryl, uh, I'd rather you play on your side of the porch. And then she said, um, I'd rather you all not play on the porch at all. Why don't you go inside? Well, this is a white lady. And this is the white lady. And, and and this was the person that I knew as a nice white lady. I mean, she was always nice to us. And now, why is this uh, lady being so mean? Uh, I didn't know there was a side to the porch. She said, I'd rather you play on your, on, on your side. I didn't know there was a side. I mean, the whole time I'd been there, I'd been playing all over the porch. And now all of a sudden the porch has a side. Where's this invisible line that I'm not seeing? And then she's telling me uh, not to play on the porch. I, I need to play inside. Uh, you know, what's going on here? I didn't get it. In retrospect, of course I get it now because t racial tension was so high. And you gotta understand that era. This is in the, in the middle of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King's home was getting bombed, you know, by the Klan. Uh, all kinds of things were happening. Um, Edgar Everett's been assassinated, on and on and on. And um, here, this lady is sending me inside my house who used to be so nice. So in retrospect, she was trying to protect me and my family, mm -hmm. as well as her and her property, because you know, we were like in an all-white neighborhood. And suppose you know somebody driving by realized, oh, this white lady is renting to a black family. Uh, maybe we should come burn a cross in her yard. Yeah, uh, if you remember, or you was remember, the KKK remember. prevalent in Boston oh, at that time? Absolutely. Wow. Everywhere. And so even in the Northeast, it, this isn't just a Southern thing. You're saying? No, 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 it's not. It was not. Um, and uh, if, if you remember Viola Luizzo, uh, Viola Luizzo was a white lady who uh, you know participated in in our civil rights back in the '60s, and she was driving a black uh, civil rights activist to go to a march. And the Klan happened to see her on the highway as they were driving there to protest the march or whatever. And while she was driving, they pulled up alongside her car and shot her in the face, murdered her right there on the highway. Uh, the, you know, the car ran, you know, she, she was shot dead while she was driving. And of course the car veered off the road and crashed. Uh, the black guy survived. Uh, he was in the passenger seat but she did not. And all because she had a black man, she was a white woman, uh, you know, driving a black man around. Uh, now, you know, in later years, like just back, let's say 1992 or three, um, when I was uh, interviewing this one Klan leader, um, 
shortly after I interviewed him, he uh, went to prison for he and, and one of his Klansmen, he pulled up to a stoplight in his town here in Maryland. And at the stoplight, right in the main intersection of town, uh, there was a, a vehicle to the right, had a black driver and a white and a white woman in the passenger seat. And he and the Klansman, uh, the Klansman got out, dragged him out of the truck and beat him within inches of his life. They left him in the street for dead, thinking he was dead and drove off in front of 11 witnesses. This is in 1992. 92, yeah, 92. Is this 93. right around the time of the OJ trial, or is that pre that? That's, no, that's probably, OJ, that was 94. 94, right. right. Right, Wow. Some things haven't changed. Now, how would you compare what was going on then, right? I mean, MLK, uh, Bobby Kennedy, everything you just talked about, someone just pulling up to a white woman just because she's driving with a black man shooting them. How would you compare that to today with the racial tensions today? Is it even comparable? Or is there some similarities? There are, yeah, there are many, many similarities. You know, these, these attitudes, you know, prevail because people don't want change. People are creatures of habit. They're, you know, human beings are. And, and when they see this, they, they feel that their landscape, their way of life is being eroded, uh, if you will. Take, uh, again, you know, this, this is a little bit musically before your time. Uh, you take somebody like, like Elvis Presley, what was it that people did not like about him? It, it was the white establishment that did not like him at the time. Mm. Uh, the, the black uh, establishment embraced him because Elvis was doing black music. And, and but then when he hit the, and, and, and but here's what happened. White kids, they were tired of hearing their parents' music. They wanted something new that, you know, that they could call their own. And they found it in Elvis. He was different. He was different for white people. He wasn't different for black people. We've been doing that music all along. Right. Right. And Elvis had gravitated towards it. He was singing blues. He was dancing around like a black guy, wiggling his hips, knocking his knees, etc. That was totally different for white people. And white kids loved it. White parents hated it. You know? Now, of course, over time that evolved, he became, they gave him the title King of Rock and Roll and all that sort of thing. But initially, they did not like him at all because he was a sellout. He was a race trader. He, you know, he was he was doing something that, that was not, you know, our culture. Mm -hmm. It was despicable. It was corrupting white youth. Daryl, let's stay right there and talk a little bit deeper about music, right? So, sure. um, you know, I would I would call music the great connector. You actually said yes. that everyone likes music, even the KKK. That's right. Right. Um, you play blues, rock and roll, jazz, country. You've actually said, if you're paying, I'm playing. I'm playing. I love that. I love that. You know, you said um, you wanted to be a diplomat as a kid when you were growing up. You know, this is obviously, you know, in your in your um, adolescent years, high school, maybe going into college. You said you had, you had perhaps wanted to be a diplomat, uh, an espionage agent, uh, a computer programmer. But then you saw a rock concert that featured, you'd mentioned Elvis and the legendary Chuck Berry, the original king of rock and roll, right? That's right. So what happened in that rock concert and what sparked in your mind, you know, the path that you set on in the music career? I just saw how happy people were. Uh, it was amazing. People who would never meet uh, the person on stage, not even come close. But yet that individual up there 
just had total command of 20,000 people. You know, all cheering, et cetera. Uh, they all were happy, all colors, all kinds of people, all ages. Um, I thought, you know, wow, that, you know, that person is, is touching people that he will never meet. I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to make people happy. And, and music was a medium to do that. And that particular kind of music seemed, you know, was very energized, uh, you know, that rock and roll stuff. So I decided I'm going to be a rock and roll artist. You knew when you from your first concert, you're like, I got to do this. Well, I, I knew uh, from seeing them on TV and then I had to go see them in person. You know, see, you know, it's just real. It's just who was at that concert? But, who was playing at that concert you went to? Where and when was it? The, the, the first rock and roll concert I went to was Chubby Checker, uh, Lloyd Price, and some other people. And, and I saw the same thing. And now I, I, you know, of course, I knew who Elvis and Chuck Berry were, mm -hmm. but um, I, I had not seen them at that point. My first Chubby Checker was famous for the twist. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I learned how to dance when it came out. You got a little twist in you still? You got oh, a little yeah, twist absolutely. in you? Absolutely. Oh, Let yeah. me see a little twist. Can I see a little twist? <laughs> yeah. Love that. The sock hop, the twist. Yeah. Love so, that. Uh, I saw Elvis first, uh, March 10th, 1973, in Roanoke, Virginia. That was my first Elvis concert. 1973, and, uh, Elvis. Yep. yep. And, uh, and then the next month, April, I saw Chuck Berry. Mm -hmm. Now, were you playing music at that time? No, not only on, on, on the record player. Wow. So what's the first instrument that you picked up that set on this uh, life passion of yours? It was a piano. But back then, they didn't really have portable pianos, you know, so you can go to a jam or whatever. Yeah. If, if, if there was a piano there already, you know, you were out of luck. You know, it, you, now you have keyboards you carry under your arm, you know, whatever. But uh, so what I did was... Elvis played guitar, Chuck Berry played guitar, so I got a guitar. And I trans I transferred everything that I had taught myself or had been taught on the piano by my friends onto the guitar. So to this day, I still kind of play guitar like you like you play piano. And uh, I, you know, guitar is easier to carry, so I was able to go to my friend's homes or, or open mic jam session or whatever. Like just take the guitar and play. And that's what? That was the first time you started playing right there, and then. Yeah, but I I didn't start out with you know with with playing the instrument. I wasn't I wasn't very good, uh, so I sang. I started out singing, and then you know. So I, you I, have this baritone, like almost uh, like a Barry White voice going on. Have you ever heard that before? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I I didn't always have that. Uh, I was a tenor back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't hit those notes now. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, you'd be yeah. doing some sweet love songs, like <laughs> I, if you were in a modern day R and B uh, band, like if you were in Boys to Men, you would be that guy that'd be like, "Hey, girl, you know, you and I, you would deserve yeah. so much better." That would be you in today's music. Well, you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, Barry White, yeah, and I heard I have heard that a lot, and that depends upon the age of the person hearing me. Yeah, uh, you know, the older people and given the style of music you know that I do. Uh, they would say Brooke Benton. Hmm. I don't know Brooke Benton. I got to read up. I uh, see so you got to check him out. I got to check him out. Brooke Benton. Yeah. Let me write that down. We're yeah. learning things here today. Write, write, write down a song called Lie to Me, Brooke Benton. Lie to Me. All right. Cool. Also, check out Snap Your Fingers, Joe Henderson. Joe Henderson. 
Yeah, snap your fingers. I want our audience to check this out. Joe Henderson, oh, yeah. snap your fingers. Uh-huh. And Brooke Benton. Lie to me. Right, amazing. So do you have a favorite musician of all time? Because you say, you had mentioned Chuck you had Berry. worked with Chuck Berry for 30 plus years. Yes. Chuck Berry, yeah. Johnny B. Good. You know, Absolutely. what else? Uh, who else or what else? Both. What were your favorite songs well, from uh, from Chuck uh, Berry? What did you play with him? And, and what other artists? Well, I, did... I played all the hits with him. Um, Johnny B. Good, Roll Over Beethoven, Sweet Little Sixteen, Nadine, yeah. Maybelline, Carol, School Days. All of them. Amazing. Too much monkey business. Amazing. But, uh, you know, I, Johnny B. Good is my favorite song uh, from Chuck. And it's my favorite song of all time. Uh, also, like Little Richard's, uh, I like anything he did. But my Little favorite Richard. Little Richard would be uh, Lucille, Good Godly Miss Molly. I love uh, Jailhouse Rock by Elvis, Hard-Headed Woman. When you saw the scene, love. you've seen, I assume, Back to the Future when Michael J. Fox did Johnny yes. Be Good. Sure. You know, I was a kid when that movie came out. That melted me. I love that. Anytime that movie comes on, I mean, did you see that scene? That must have, like, what did that do to you when uh, Michael uh, J. Fox he, did that? It was a great scene. It was a great, you know, and it's, it's just a scene that everybody remembers from that movie. Of course. You know? Of course. Yeah. Let me ask and, you your thoughts. And, and, and that's the power of that Chuck Berry rock and roll. Of course. You know, it only took up a couple minutes in the movie, but it, it, it is the most memorable scene of the movie. And the whole movie was great, but that is the scene that sits out. Just like uh, Pulp Fiction, remember that movie? Of course. Uh, Travolta. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and, what, and what song were they, were they uh, playing? That was, was Chuck Berry. Again, um, Chuck Berry. You yeah. never can tell. C'est la vie. You never yeah, C'est la exactly. It's that Chuck Berry music that wow. jumps out at you. Well, you had once said that Chuck Berry perhaps was the greatest civil rights hero in America, I want to say the greatest, but was a civil rights hero because because of him, white white people or, or black people, white kids, black kids had danced together for the first time in American history. Is that right? Because of the, because of the music he created. Yes. Right. And the other artists played it as well, but but they would not be playing it had it not been for him creating it. Of course. Uh, Elvis, you know, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bill Haley in the Comets, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly. All these people, uh, as well as Little Richard, Bo Diddley, Fast Domino, on and on. Chuck created that music. He took Boogie Woogie, and put, you know, and before rock and roll, things swung. Mm-hmm. Swing music, yeah. That was the group for swing. Right. Rock and rolls. Boom, boom, bop, boom, boom, bop, boom, boom, bop. You know that backbeat, right? You got me so moving you, over here, Daryl. Yeah. So he took that that swing music, mm-hmm. you know, and the blues and country, and put a backbeat on it. That boogie woogie with a backbeat, right? That became rock and roll. And in Back to the Future, he called. There's a scene when he when Michael J. Fox is playing, and the, I forget the guy's name, but he says, "You know that new sound you're looking for? Yeah. Well, get a listen to this." Boom, and he puts it, and the guy, "Oh wow, that's what that new sound was." That's Cortez. Exactly. Cr- and Michael J. Fox and- said, "You might not be ready for this, but your kids are gonna love it." Right, exactly. You know, it's it prophetic, right? Right. And just like the, you know, Chuck Berry wrote a song called Rock and Roll Music. Mm-hmm. And everybody's covered it. Everybody music. likes the right. rock and roll music. Right. Any gotta, old time you choose it. You use it. Yeah. It's got a what? It's got a, it's got a backbeat. You can't Ooh, lose it. You got a backbeat. Okay, all right. I just failed that test, but I know the song. Yeah, respect. So listen to rock and roll music, Chuck Berry. I love that. A backbeat you can't lose. You got a backbeat. That's what he's talking about. You. Ah. 
That's the backbeat. Amazing. Last question on music before we move on to you know more serious topics. Uh, my favorite artist. You know, I love all sorts of music. I love Sinatra. I love hip hop today. Sure. I love Hall and Oates. I love, you know, Johnny B. Good. All that. Um, what are your thoughts on Jackie Wilson? Oh man, one of the greatest singers of all time. Uh, Elvis loved him, and in fact, in Las Vegas, he was known as the Black Elvis, even though he was doing that before Elvis. Right. Started. It's always yeah. so. I learned about Jackie Wilson. I love old movies. I learned about Jackie Wilson, and for our audience that doesn't know who he is. Uh, there was a, a famous scene in uh, Coming to America, Eddie Murphy, where he's shouting from the rooftops, to be loved, to be loved, oh, what a feeling, to be yeah. loved. And I remember, like, these, I, 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 who is that singer? Who is that person? I found that it was Jackie Wilson. And for some reason, he's not as famous as Elvis, as um, Chuck Berry, as James Brown. Listen, Why is that? Because he, just, he has so not, many amazing not, songs. It's not for some reason. There's a reason why. Tell me why. The, re the reason is racism. Hmm. And, you know, you only let a few black people slip through the cracks. You don't want too many of them. Jackie Wilson was a good-looking uh, black guy. Yep. Uh, he had, you know, women were crazy over him. Right. And white women were not immune to that. You know, some, you know what, what's good-looking is good-looking. What sounds good sounds good, regardless of color. And, you know, and that that was a big concern back then. Little Richard got away with it because Little Richard was gay. So people were not, you know, so so worried about their women going after, you know, this gay man. All right. But, you know, you, you think about it, you think about it like this also. When, uh, when, you know, when I was coming up, there were no black idols on TV. Uh, I, you know, who did I have to relate to? I had to relate to, to little Opie Taylor in Mayberry. You know, Andy Griffith's show. And Opie didn't have any black friends. Uh, I watched Leave It to Beaver. Little Beaver Cleaver and Wally Cleaver, they didn't have any black friends. I watched Lost in Space. You know, Space Family Robinson with, with their crazy robot. You know, they went all over the universe. He went to other universes. And no black so, people. No black people. They saw, <laughs> they, they saw green people. Ridiculous. They saw with with, with uh, forearms. Freaking ridiculous. They saw everybody. They're seeing aliens, but not black people. You know how freaking absurd <laughs> that is? It, it, yeah, by today's standards, sure. Yes. But that's what I had to grow up with, all right? So then um, the first, and there were no, of course, there were no black superheroes. That's why it was, it was such a big thing that, that this uh, person who just died. Black Panther, of course, Chadwick right? Boseman, exactly. of course. Exactly, you know? Yes. So, I mean, who were my heroes back then? Batman, Superman, Aquaman. You know, Wonder Woman, you know, all these people. Mm -hmm. But who, what were they? They all were white, mm -hmm. right? So, so the, I mean, you, you had a couple, uh, most shows that featured any black people, they were in a subservient role as a butler, you know, the maid, maid, the butler, a chauffeur, right. you know, a pimp, a drug dealer in the movies or whatever. Uh, but then, you know, when we got some better roles, they were never top, uh, you know, they're always secondary. Um, so, like, say, I Spy with uh, Bill Cosby and Robert Cook. Hmm. They were partners in that in that TV series, uh, but but one was not higher than the other. Uh, then we saw Lieutenant Uhura in uh, Star in the original Star Trek with uh, William Shatner, and that was the first interracial kiss on TV. What year was that? Uh, I think 1969. Right. So all throughout the 60s, there's nothing like that going on. Exactly. You so know? into the 70s. And, when did Shaft now, come out? 
Shaft came out, I think, what, maybe in the late 70s? Late 70s? Maybe mid to late 70s. So who was the first, you know, you said there was only white superheroes. Who was the first black person you saw on TV? You're like, all right, I like that guy or gal. Yeah, okay. Well, he was a hero. He was a superhero with superpowers. But he, but he was, a, you know, a badass. Uh, that was Mr. T. Mr. T? And, yeah. Of course, Mr. Mr. T. T. But when was that? That was on the A-Team. What was but that? But that was not until the early 80s, though, right? Exactly. Exactly. It took up until the early 80s until a superhero badass dude showed up on the scene, Mr. T? Right. Exactly. And what did they pick for, uh, for that? They picked the ugliest black guy they could find. Mr. T. Yeah, they're not gold gonna put chains him. galore. Yeah, they're not, gonna, you know, and, and his mohawk. You of know, course, put a, a Denzel Washington or a uh, Billy D. Williams or mm-hmm. some, you know, good-looking black guy up there because again, that would attract, you know, the females. And so, you know, you know, what female in her right mind is going to be attracted to Mr. T? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. T is not going to be happy when he sees this, Daryl. Let me tell you something. Well, I tell you what, you know, I, I, I met him one time. And I was not very impressed, but, uh, you know, that's a different story. All right. No worries. So, uh, no, I appreciate uh, We're going all over the place here with, with music and everything. Uh, to kind of get back into things, you know, your parents were very leery of your ability to make a living being a musician. So, and for good reason. Right. So tell me about that. Did you ever have any doubts? Like, what are your thoughts on the financial side of things being a musician? I never have any doubts about anything that I do. Wow. Not, not because I'm an egotist, but because my, my parents instilled that confidence in me. And maybe, and maybe that was a mistake on their part. You know, they told me I could be anything I wanted to be. And now, so this is what I want to be. Well, now why are you telling me I can't be it? It's too late. You know, you know. You, you've already brought me up this way. You can't, you can't, you, you know, can't uh, put this back into the can. Been, the, the bell has been rung. The bell has been rung. ring the bell. Gotcha. You know? Amazing. So um, can we stay on this financial topic for a second before we get into the KKK? You know, um, you know, I host another show here on Valuetainment, uh, on Valuetainment Economics, where I'm all about encouraging people to save that money. So basically, make your money, save it, be financially smart. Um, that's what I'm all about. And it's no secret that, you know, more black people live in poverty, more black kids live in poverty than any other race. Black wealth is far below white wealth. Black home ownership is far below, you know, whites. Um, education, black-owned businesses is something that needs to be improved. What are your thoughts on the economic empowerment that blacks need to improve upon in America today? Well, you, you, uh, you just hit the nail right on the head. Everything you said is 100% true. And uh, two things, you know, are, are affecting it. Uh, both we can change, one a little easier than the other. One is the uh, racism, of course, that impacts, you know, uh, minorities, especially uh, minorities of color and uh, black people. And the other is uh, education. Uh, you know, we uh, we can change, you know, we can we can self-educate and, and we can we can um, seek out better education because in the inner city, uh, we score very, very low on, uh, on SAT scores, which is one of the things that the Klan always points out to me. When they, when they, um, you know, want to put down black people's intelligence, so, you know, we're not as, as, uh, as smart as white people. You know, they say we're prone to crime, uh, and, and they evidence that by, 
the higher number of blacks in prisons than white people. And that is true. But of course, it's not so much that we're prone to crime, it's so much that there is an imbalance of our judicial system as well. And plus, as you point out the poverty, there are poor white people as well who are in prison, but plenty of black people because they cannot afford adequate legal representation. And so they end up taking a plea deal with something you know, they didn't even do, and now they're stuck there. Uh, and then they say, you know, that black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the larger the brain, the more room for capacity of, uh, of intelligence. You know, that's, that's their, their line of thinking. And they evidence that by the low SAT scores that black, people, that, that black kids, students have. Of course, they're not realizing that the, the school systems in the inner city are not as good as the school system in the suburb, which is why when we moved to Boston, it was terrible, terrible. So within a couple of weeks, we moved out to the suburbs so I could get a good education. Um, but I'll tell you this, it's not because somebody is black that they're not intelligent uh, or don't have the higher SAT scores because when, when black kids are going to school in the suburbs, their scores are, are just as high, if not higher than white kids. And when white kids go to school in the inner city, guess what? Their SAT scores are also low. It's the quality of education, not the color of skin. Of course, it's the environment that you grow up in, right? Precisely. So, so we need to focus more on on getting better education, because racism is, is what uh, it impacts us. To, you know, does not try to let us go to the better schools. You know, we're not, we're not bringing down the standards. You know, you put us, you, you give us the same quality education that you give everybody else, we will excel. Respect. So. I have a whole t uh, list of questions on the KKK. Obviously, that's something that you specialize in. And uh, before we get to that, let's just stay right here on on Black Americans. You know, you had actually some very contentious conversations with um, with a handful of Black people. And this is within the documentary and Accidental Courtesy. If you guys have not seen it, please check this out. It's incredible. A couple of young guys. There was an older guy. And uh, I think you were in a, in a bar or a restaurant. You were yeah, sitting at a table. And these guys would not shake your hand. They walked off on you. They yelled at you. Um, why are black people so angry towards you? Those particular ones, because I also have a lot of black supporters. Clearly. Clearly you have a lot of supporters. White, black, yeah. even green Martians can understand what you're bringing to the table here. Exactly. Uh, because ignorance. Ignorance, you know, uh, not being able to get up, get out and about and explore different people and and find other ways of uh, of combating racism. Uh, and here's the thing: um, you were dealing in, in in that particular scene, which took up about eight or nine minutes in the movie. Right. That scene actually actually went on for just over an hour, but of course, we couldn't include the whole hour of it. It almost became physical. And you know that that's that's how contentious it was. Who did it almost and, become and, physical with? Uh, myself and and, and, the, and the three uh, the three people, the two young guys and the older the, the guys. two young guys as well as the older guy. Because one of the guys said, "We're about yeah. the same age, buddy." You know, and yeah. then there was the two yeah. younger guys who guy. felt like you were out of touch or something. They all did. They all mm -hmm. did, and uh, because they had not been exposed to the things that I've been exposed to, their knowledge was very limited. But I can tell you this: they you know they, they were the Baltimore chapter of uh, Black Lives Matter. And, and I don't want to paint a broad brush because uh, Black Lives Matter is not an organization, it's a movement. And there are many, many 
over 90 factions across the country uh, of this movement. And they each are individual. Some are comprised of black supremacists. Some are comprised of predominantly white people. Some are, are comprised of black and white. Some have an agenda of aggression. Uh, others have an agenda, hey, you know, let's sit down and try to work this out and drop some, some legal bills and, and get them passed, et cetera. So you have all different ma you know, matters. Um, there are about five or six chapters across the country that have contacted me and said, hey, do you give workshops? Can you teach us how to do what you do? And then there are other chapters who simply just rip me a new one because you know they can't stand me because I'm sitting down talking with the enemy. I'm talking with the oppressors and things like that. I'm treating them you know, with respect. The fact that I treat them with respect, I treat anybody with respect, okay, until they put their hands on me, then it's a whole new ball game. But while, you know, people have, we have to respect someone's right to say what they want to say. We don't have to respect what they say, but let's respect their right to say it. Because if you want to be heard, then you have to, then you have to hear the other people too. You don't have to agree with them, but you must give them a chance to, to voice their opinions. And that's what I do. Because once they're heard, and I allow them to be heard, rather than shut them down and push back, then when when they are heard, their wall comes down, and they feel compelled now. Hey, this guy, my enemy, let me you know, let me say my piece, even though I'm insulting him to his face. So now their wall is down, and they reciprocate and allow me to say my piece. When I say my piece, they're hearing me because their defense mechanism is down, you know. But when it's up. You can talk all you want. It's just, you know, they're like this. It's just like hit, a, hit a brick wall. So I allow them to speak, even in that space. And then they allow me to be to be heard. And that's when they go home and think about what I've said. And it works on them. And over time, they realize, you know what, I need to change my direction. That's how people change. You know, you can legislate all day long. You can legislate and compel somebody's behavior. But you cannot legislate somebody's feelings. Well said. Just like you know, the, the bus boycott, right? White people did not want us in the front of the bus. Uh, you know, when the when the law changed, you know, that we could sit wherever we wanted to sit, that compelled them to, to let us sit there, even though they didn't like it, they didn't feel that we should sit there. They had to abide by the law, otherwise they'd be the one in jail, not Rosa Parks. Hmm. So respect, a willingness to listen, uh, willingness to listen. Well, let me, let's put it this way. Between traveling as a child and now as an adult musician around the world, I have been in 57 different countries on six continents. So I've been exposed exposed to a multitude of ethnicities, colors of skin, cultures, traditions, religions, you name it. And no matter how far I've gone from this country, no matter how different a person may look or, or their culture may be from mine, I have concluded at the end of the day, we all are human beings and we all want basically the same four or five things, no matter how far away we are from this country. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be treated fairly. We want to be heard. And we want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we can understand those simple, simple five human things, no matter what culture we go into, no matter how far away from our own country, we can navigate that culture. So if you view white supremacists as simply another culture and you apply those five things, you will, you will, you will make a connection. You'll be able to navigate with them and be able to have discourse 
civil discourse. That's some powerful and, stuff right there, Daryl. Well, I, I tell you what, you know, I've proven that it works. Yes, you uh, have. And so uh, I, I'm not knocking what anybody else does because there are many facets to racism. And what they do, they're addressing, you know, one facet of the police and systemic racism, et cetera. And that's great. You know, that needs to be done also. But we also need to address the individual races. And that's what I do. I sit down and have a heart-to-heart, face-to-face, head-to-head talk with them. Right. With the, the key is with them, not about with them, them, not at them, not past them, but with them. And that's what creates change. That's awesome. That's a great segue to obviously jumping into that side of things. Just so before we move on to that, I'm, I want to recap what you just said, because I don't want to just jump right over that. Everyone in the world mm-hmm. craves these five things. Yes. Right. To be loved, mm-hmm. to be respected to be treated fairly, to be heard, and everyone wants the same thing for their family. Those five things. Yeah. Did I say that right? Absolutely. Everything, everybody wants the same thing for their family as you want for yours. Respect. Um, and that's how you're able to, with that state of mind, that's how you're able to sit down with these racist KKK members and hear them and listen to them. Yeah, let me give you an example of something. Please do. That actually happens. Okay, so when when one of these guys walks into a room with me and sees me, their wall goes right up because I am the enemy. I am black. Just because you're black, you are the enemy. Absolutely. Why else join the KKK? Right. Right? You know, I mean, what, what was the KKK all about? You know, they, they, they didn't like black people, right? Mm-hmm. There are no black members there. So that wall goes right up when they see the enemy and they're ready to attack. So I'm sitting there two feet away from the person interviewing them. And I'm asking, you know, how do you hate me? You, know, you don't even know me. All you see is this, the color of my skin. Well, and then as I pointed out, they tell you, well, you know, black people are prone to crime. All you have to do is look at the prison system. There are more blacks than there than white people. You know, black people are, are lazy. You know, they don't want to work. They prefer to scam the government welfare system. Um, and black people, you know, are, are, are not as intelligent as white people. They're, they're born with a smaller brain. All you have to do is, is look at your SAT scores, Mr. Davis. You know, black students consistently every year, they score lower than white people. Um, are these the consistent talking points yes, of everyone in yes. the KKK? You're prone when to violence. Know. You're not as smart yeah. as me. Um, when SAT you, scores, this kind of thing. Yes. Because, yeah, that's, that's the narrative they, you know, that they teach their members when you come in. Those are the talking points, because when you repeat it enough times, it becomes the truth wow. in their minds. You know, one's perspective is one's reality. All right. So I'm sitting there, you know, that, so, so when they walk in the room and there I am, that wall goes up. They're ready to pass. So usually when, you, when you're telling somebody things like that, you know, you're talking to your adversary. And, and you are calling him uh, a criminal, uh, lazy, being on welfare, and telling him he's not as intelligent as you are because his brain is smaller and things like that. Is that offensive? Of course that's offensive. Am I offended by it? Absolutely not. Wow. And, but why, why am I not offended by it? Because it's, it's not, not right. True. Yeah. Exactly. Why would I be offended by a lie? But too many people let their emotions get in front of them. Wow. And then they start pushing back. And, and when you push back against a wall, guess what? The wall usually wins. All right. You know, you hit that brick wall. You're not going through it. 
You know, they're not hearing what you have to say because you're pushing back. They are accustomed to that pushback because they are offending you all the time. And, and so, you know, they, they, see, they see somebody who is Jewish, somebody who is black, somebody who is Muslim, somebody who is gay. These are people they don't like. Mm-hmm. Or somebody white with a black person, that's a race traitor, somebody you know, they don't like. So they go on the attack. And, and within 45 seconds, they're getting pushback. So they are accustomed to that. It's either verbal pushback or physical. So they are accustomed to it. But now guess what? I'm sitting two feet in front of them, listening to them, allowing them to be heard. And so I'm throwing them off their game. That because they're not used they're to expecting that. you to fight. They're expecting you exactly. to overreact. And exactly. you just how do you actually not you know <laughs> react in a in a negative way? How do you sit there and take that? What is that about you in your DNA? That you're like, all right, buddy, all right, I I see what you're saying. They're not talking about me. They're not talking about me. And you have to understand, I mean, they think they are, but I know better. How do they know me? They just met me five, ten minutes ago. Now, if my mother or father would tell me, Daryl, you know, I I think you're prone to crime. You know, know, you're you're very lazy, and you're not that smart. If if my parents would tell me that, I might take a little more, you know, acceptance of, of what they had to say because they brought me into this world. They raised me. But not somebody who just met me 10, 5, 10 minutes ago. No, I'm not going to listen to that. I mean, I'll listen to it, but you know, it, it rolls off my back. And plus, you've got to understand my background again. My parents were diplomats. You know, we go into foreign countries that have policies and traditions and laws that don't you know, merge with our own. And my dad's job was to foster better relations with the foreign country, with the U.S. So you have to listen to those people and listen to them and try to understand where they're coming from. And then, you know, you have these conversations. So here's the key. You cannot convince anybody of anything when that wall is up. You need to lower the temperature, bring that wall Mm -hmm. down. And then they hear you because when the wall is up, they're like this. All right. So when when I am listening to them, showing them that respect, allowing them to be heard, all right? That wall is coming down. And when the wall gets down, then they they feel compelled to reciprocate and allow you to be heard. Hmm. Because after all, you gave them, you know, you know that respect and that, uh, and that allowing them to be heard, you gave them their platform. So now they're gonna give you yours. So I could go on the attack at that point because their wall is down. You don't know nothing. You can't. You can't tell me nothing. That kind of a thing. Exactly. You sit back. You're the one who's a criminal because you're the one who's hanging black men from trees. You're the one walking walking into black churches and shooting people Mm -hmm. and bombing their churches and burning down their homes. Uh, You know, dragging black people behind pickup trucks. Which you naturally don't say, right? Right. But do you do you ever want to say that? Do you ever want to say you? Yes, of course I do. But you hold it back. Because because what, 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 because it's true, these things did happen and they still happen. Okay, yeah, so it's true. I could, I, I would be well within my right to say that. All right, but no, if I do that, that wall starts going back up. I want to keep the wall down so they hear what I have to say. So rather than go on the offense, I stay on the defense. Hmm. And what I say is, you know, I hear what you're saying, but please consider this: I don't have a criminal record. Nobody in my family has a criminal record. I have never been on welfare. Nobody in my family has been on welfare. I've never measured my brain size, but I'm sure it's the same size as anybody else's. And as far as SAT scores go, my SATs 
got me into college. I have a college degree. Now I say that knowing that that person sitting two feet in front of me mm -hmm. barely made it out of high school if he did, all right? And I know that I have more intelligence in my little fingernail than he and his whole clan put together. But I'm not gonna throw that in his face because if I did, that wall goes back up. So, so let me tell you, so yes. let me tell you what happens then, okay? So you know, rather than attack with all those facts that I have, I just defend them. And that because that way he hears them and he can process them. You, he doesn't hear anything when, when his wall is up. So I can tell you this for a fact, not an opinion, a fact. Because years later, months later, whatever, when they, when they uh, renounce that ideology and give it up and give you their robes and hoods and stuff, here's what, what, what I found out has happened multiple times with these people. They go home and they think about what transpired during the day. And they're like, damn, you know, I just had a three hour conversation with a black guy. Three hours and we didn't fight. You know, we disagreed, but we didn't fight. You know, and, and what he said about such and such, you know, that makes sense, but he's black. Uh, but but what he said was true, oh, but he's black. So they're having this cognitive dissonance going on. You know, they realize something is true, but it came from a black source. So that does not compute, you know? And so it leaves them with a dilemma. And the dilemma is, I know this to be true. So should I disregard his skin color and believe the truth and change my direction? Or should I consider his skin color and keep on living a lie? That becomes their dilemma. And eventually many of them go the right way and they believe the truth and they renounce and they change. There will always be those who will go to their grave being hateful, racist, and violent. But see, that's why I say I plant the seed, I have the impetus for them to change themselves. I don't like, like to say that I converted them. I just gave them a reason to think about it and they convert themselves. And that was in the introduction. That's what I said is that you're the yeah. spark that, exactly. that causes them to go back and sit at home and be like, damn, like, yeah, this guy just blew my mind. He was he was smart. He was cool. We got along. He plays the hell out of a keyboard, a piano. He can do the twist. He can do it all. <laughs> and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> So you blow their mind a little bit and they go home to their wife, to their kids, to whatever. And what do you think they're going through at that like that night? Right. Because this might be the first time they're really interacting exactly. with a black person exactly. and exactly. a cool black guy yeah. and, a, and a smart guy. Are they are they thinking, man, That's is my whole know. life a lie? And what have I been doing? Like, what do you think is actually going on in these KKK members heads that I just causes them to say, what is going on here? because I can tell you exactly because they told me, you know, and now we're friends. And some of them even come out with me on the speaking circuit and speak with me on the same stage and, and renounce, you know, their former organization. What goes through their mind is, you know, how, uh, depends upon how, what they have invested in the group. Mm -hmm. If they're just a rank and file member, you know, um, they don't have a lot invested. Uh, so they're easier to get out. If they are a leader, mm -hmm. that means they have followers. So what goes to their mind also is, man, you know, how do I tell all these people that I was wrong? Whoa. And that's very powerful mm -hmm. when they go and do that and say, you know, I I'm leaving, you know, I've decided, you know, hey guys, you know, this is wrong. This is not right. I I've been misleading you. And, and you feel like it's easier to 
plant that seed in a rank and file member versus a leader? Is that? Of course, because okay. you know what? When you are a leader, you are powerful. And no matter what organization you are in, racist or non-racist, um, political or non-political, when you are in, when you are sitting on the throne of power, you don't want to get off. Nobody wants to give up power. Mm-hmm. Let, 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 let's go back to music. If you have a number one song, number one, platinum, you don't want to see it drop down to number two and then down to number three mm-hmm. and then fall off the top 100. You want to stay at number one for as long as you can. Of course. Okay. So they're number one when they're a leader. They're not number one in the world or in your world or my world, but they're number one in their own little bubble. In their little world. And they have all these followers that look mm-hmm. up to them. They don't want to get off that power. So is there how, um, do you, how do you tell all those followers, hey, you know what? I was wrong. And have leaders actually done that? So, so yeah. here's my question. You know, you've you've convinced what a couple hundred clansmen to give up their cloak and robe, whether directly or indirectly, right? Right. Um, well, they convinced themselves. I just gave them the reason. Correct. You're the spark that that causes them to go down this path of enlightenment, almost. Yeah. Um, what do those leaders, those leaders say to the followers? Like, meaning. There's a difference between a guy saying, you know what, I, I just met Daryl, that guy blew my mind, I'm going to quit the KKK, I'm just a rank and file guy, I'm going to keep moving on with my life. Versus the leader that has to maybe speak to his constituents and say, guys, I got a breaking news for everybody, I'm out. Yeah. Walk me through that thought process. Okay, uh, it, it goes, it happens a few different ways. Uh, some just say, hey, you know what, I'm, um, I'm retiring, I'm, I'm stepping down. I'm retiring. Yeah. Uh, now, if they retire um, and still have those beliefs, mm-hmm. that they, they take the, the rank of giant. Okay, grand means state level. Imperial means national level. So uh, a state leader is known as a grand dragon. A national leader is known as an imperial wizard. So if they retire because you know they can't do it anymore, they can't they can't march anymore. They're they, you know they had knee operation or just old and whatever else. Uh, they just need to get out, but they still have, they still believe in white supremacy. Then, then they are, it's like, you know, we would say president or ex-president, former president. So a former grand dragon who still has those beliefs becomes a grand giant. Hmm. An imperial wizard becomes an imperial giant. Giant means retired, but still of the faith. Okay. Um, so then there are those who, who retire uh, and, and don't have those feelings anymore. They, they leave and they go quietly. Because if they start talking bad about their organization, there may be some ramifications. Because you know what? When you join that organization, you take a blood oath. Mm. All right? And you go through What type of ramifications could they face? Uh, I'll tell you what. Look up a guy named David Lynch. Hmm. Not David Lynch, the movie maker. But David Lynch. Just put in David Lynch, neo-Nazi, white supremacist. He was a friend of mine. He he, he, He formed the largest skinhead movement in the country and uh, vehemently uh, violent and racist, anti-Semitic, everything. And he and I became friends, he got out of the movement and he testified against some of his own members. Um, Somebody went into his home while he was sleeping and blew his head off. Now that doesn't happen all the time, but Mm -hmm. yes, that can happen. And and what you have to understand is, you know, uh, when you join in these things, that becomes your family, it's like a cult. That becomes your family above and beyond all others. You don't betray family. If you want to go away quietly, then be quiet. 
Um, but you don't, you know, come into the family and then, you know, talk bad about them after you leave. Wow. You know, they might come after you. Now, Daryl, uh, this this gentleman, David Lynch, who uh, you, you referred to him as your friend. Mm-hmm. Now, I know, obviously, in, in a lot of your um, in your interviews and in the documentary, you refer to a lot of these KKK Klansmen as your friend. So here's my mm-hmm. question. Are they really your friends or are they more acquaintances you get along with? Both. Uh, I have acquaintances I get along with, and I have friends. And, you know, you don't always have to agree with your friends. You know, you might have a, you know, you you might be pro-abortion and your friend is, you know, uh, pro-choice or whatever, you know, pro, uh, they're both the same, pro-choice or or pro-life or whatever. Uh, But but you find other things to agree upon, you know, and the more you talk, the more you begin to humanize the other person and you might see their point of view or, or your point of view, et cetera. That's how things you, you find commonalities that way. Even though you start out as adversaries, mm-hmm. the more you talk, that gap narrows. So your your adversaries here, and as you find more and more commonalities and conversations, you're here. You are forming a relationship at that point. And you talk some more, and that gap even gets closer because you found more commonalities. By the time you get here, you have a friendship. All right. You may not agree on everything, but you have a friendship. Hmm. And at this point in time the trivial things that you have in contrast such as skin color or whether you go to a church a temple a mosque or a synagogue begin to matter less and less wow would you say that to the friends would you say today you have more black friends white friends latino friends female friends all the above is there any differentiating all the the above no difference no difference to me wow no difference to me uh, and, you know, and I, I thank my parents, you know, you know, for that background. A couple uh, stories I want to ask you about, speaking of your friends. There was one uh, instance where, uh, I believe it was in Maryland, the Grand Dragon Roger Kelly. You two became so close, he named you the godfather of his daughter. Yes. And uh, now there, there's a um, an, uh, postscript to that. Um, yeah, he did. And, but you know, uh, his uh, his wife's brother or whatever uh, wanted you know wanted that position, and, and and that side of the family was a little little you know upset about that. So I just said, hey, I can imagine if a Klansman family, the uh, yeah, a double D over here, he's going to be the uh, <laughs> yeah. Godfather. So um, I, I I really push that. Title. Another story, and this 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 is actually very apropos. A Klans woman named Tina Puig. Uh huh. Um, and once you told her, hey, shut up and listen, and she yeah. eventually did, and you drove her and her family to see her husband in jail, if I understand it correctly, yeah. and she came back after essentially hating you initially. She said, you believes, and I quote, God does work through people, and he most certainly uses Daryl Davis as an instrument. Yes. Do you believe that? Do you believe God uses you as an instrument to do what you do? I do believe so. I do believe he has a very strong hand in it because I've been in situations that I should not have walked out of. Wow. On two feet, yeah. And what instrument would you be, being that you're a musician? A uniter. A uniter. And music unites people. Of course, we covered that. Yeah. Um, another, Another, a couple other stories. At one point, you walked a clans lady down the aisle. You served as her 
you know, father, surrogate father. Surrogate father. Uh, tell me about that. Okay, so this, uh, let's go back to three years ago, uh, last month, Charlottesville, Virginia, where they had a uh, white supremacist, large white supremacist rally. And um, Heather Heyer, I believe, was the yes, woman. Yes, Heather Heyer was, was murdered there by a, by a white supremacist. Uh, there were many, many scenes of violence that day mm-hmm. all over downtown Charlottesville. One of the scenes uh, depicted some Klansmen coming down the steps of a uh, Confederate park. I remember. Uh, swinging flag, you know, Confederate flagpoles at this black guy who at the same time was trying to torch them with an improvised uh, flamethrower, an aerosol can. I remember that. Or whatever. Okay, yeah. So the leader of that an Imperial Wizard, um, had just come down the steps, and he turned around and saw this scene going on, and he pulled a gun and pointed it at the black guy's head and shouted, hey, nigger, and then he lowered the gun and fired it, and the bullet went into the ground near the black guy's feet. And then the Imperial Wizard turned and walked away, right past the Charlottesville police, who were standing there watching the whole thing go down and did absolutely nothing as a result of them of their of their inaction and also other inactions that day uh the police chief of charlottesville was fired and replaced as as he should have been uh anyway um so you know i was thinking you know what on earth uh what you know what would you do if you saw that in your city and and, and too many americans think oh you know uh, i live in los angeles or i live in boise idaho you know, I live in Dallas, Texas. You know, that, you know Charlottesville, that's their problem. You know, you know, I, that's not here. But I'll tell you what, um, anywhere there's hate, that can happen. It can happen in any city USA. And, and furthermore, any city USA, if you are an American, is your city. You can only put your head down on a pillow in one city at a time. But, but you own all those cities. If you live in Dallas, Austin is also your city. So is El Paso. So is Los Angeles. So is Oregon, Oregon. These are all American cities, and you're an American. This is your country. So what problems Charlottesville has, you have, because it's your country. So what are you going to do? Well, the first thing people want to do is blame somebody else. All right. So we could blame the the Klansmen coming down the stairs and trying to hit somebody with the flagpole. Yeah, they should not have been doing that. They they get some blame. Uh, we can blame the black guy if we're trying to torch somebody. He should not have been doing that. So he gets some blame. We can blame the uh, clan leader for pulling out a gun and firing it. He should definitely not have been doing that. But you know what? We can blame the police for not doing their job. You know, they're paid by us taxpayers to serve and protect. Who are they serving? Who are they, who are they protecting that day? Certainly not anybody there. And damn sure not Heather Heyer. Okay. So they weren't doing their job, they definitely get some blame. But maybe we ought to blame ourselves for allowing our country to come to that point in the 21st century. Hmm. But you know what? Sitting around, because every time you blame somebody, they're gonna blame somebody else or they're gonna blame you back. So so blaming is a waste of time, all right? Um, maybe what we should do is, is focus our energy on doing something constructive rather than just passing blame around. That's a waste of time. Uh, Realize that our country can only become one of two things. One, it can become that which we sit back and let it become, or it can be that which we stand up and make it become. 
So we have to ask ourselves the question, do I want to sit back and see what my country becomes, or do I want to stand up and make my country become what I want to see? So I chose the latter. I'm going to stand up and make this country become what I want to see, because I have to live here. My future has to live here, whoever comes after me. So I called that guy up, the shooter. And I said, look, man, I said, you and I need to talk. I knew who he was you know, beforehand. I said, you and I need to talk. Not uh, plans from the black man, but man to man, American to American. Your Confederate history is as much a part of my history as my black history is a part of yours. Let's you and I explore American history together. I, I want to hear what you have to say. He said, okay. So we set a date. I drove an hour and a, and a half to his home by myself. And I go into his home, got KKK stuff all over the walls, Confederate stuff. I sat on a Confederate flag blanket on his couch, you know, and I listened to him give me a lesson in American history from a Confederate, you know, standpoint, of course. What city was he in, by the way? Uh, he's up in Maryland. Okay. And, uh, and so uh, anyway, about an hour and a half from where I live. And so I listened to this for two and a half hours. Uh, well, no, actually, it was a little bit less, about two hours. Um, and he got some things right, he got some things wrong. But I just sat back and I listened. You listened to, listened. so essentially nonsense it, for two hours. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But this goes back uh, to your whole point. You have to sit yeah, and listen. Want to you want to be respected. Bring the wall down, right? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let him have his peace, all right? So I mean, what, what's gonna it off my back? You know, none. It's just a little bit of time, that's all. Wow. So your I coolness listened. under pressure and, is wild. And, and when he was done, I corrected him on the things that he got wrong and commended him on the things that he got right. And then it's my turn to present my piece. Again, rather than attack, I said, you know what? Let's do this. Let's set a date, because his uh, fiance, the clans lady, was also there. And um, I said, let's, let's set a date. I'd like for you all to come down to my house in Silver Spring. And, um, and I would drive you both down to Washington, D.C., which is only 15 minutes from me. I will, I will go to the, uh, to the to the new Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and uh, which is about maybe thirty minutes from me. And uh, let's just take a tour of it. I said, okay. So I've been there, by the way. That is amazingly yeah. powerful stuff, right there. So I yeah. can imagine when he saw some of the stuff that's in there, his mind must have opened up a little bit. Right, and then he has to think about it again when he goes home. He just let it, you know, let it soak in. So, um, you know, we go down, you know, so he comes down to the house, we hang out in my living room with his fiance. And then, um, you know, we go on down to the museum and, and we toured for almost three hours, a short three hours. And, uh, and then we leave. And, um, you know, this is a, a, almost, you know, a year later, the incident uh, with the shooting was uh, August 12th, uh, 2017. And, um, and so this is in June, of 2018 and so a few weeks thereafter he's going to get he's going to marry that lady and she's from uh, chattanooga tennessee so her um so i, I get invited to the wedding and uh, again which is a first you know not only for me you get invited to this kkk wedding that's exactly because you know by that time it, listen you, you don't invite enemies to your wedding do you what do you invite? You invite your friends. Right. He considered me a friend. Wow. Now, you know, now 
You know, he, so he was changing. He was in the process of changing. All right. So an active verb. And so I can say, you know, we started out here. You know, you know, hey, nigga, boom, is not a friend. Exactly. The gap is closing. I've been working with him now for almost a year, right? He's, he's beginning to respect me, humanize me, see things that I want him to see. I listen to him. He listens to me, that kind of thing. So that gap is closing. It closed so much that he invites me to his wedding, all right? So then um, her, that, that not only is that a first for me, that's a first for the KKK all over, all right? And of course, he got he got some flack for that, which is good. But I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, so her father down in Tennessee was too ill or whatever to make it up to his daughter's wedding to escort her down the aisle. Guess who gets asked? Right. So what am I going to say? No, I'm a friend. So I say, yeah, sure. And I don't care what people think about me. I've already proven that. As you saw in the movie. <laughs> no, you're you're just doing what Daryl do. Like this, you're yeah, exactly. doing you. Precisely. I am. Wow. I am. So um, I did it, you know, and um, it made national news, and other KKK groups all over the place, including some of his own, saw it. The ones who weren't there, the ones who were there, saw it in person. But ones all over the place because I, I asked him if it would be okay if CNN came. Yeah. And, um, hey, can said, CNN come to your wedding? Yeah, I asked him, and he <laughs> trusts me. And uh, you know, I, I would never mislead him. You know, he's my friend. And uh, he said, yeah. He says, um, I don't care about me, you know, and, and, and my clans lady. Um, you know, we, you show our faces, but just ask them not to show the faces of the other clan people. You know, he because you know he didn't want them to lose their jobs or whatever. And um, as a leader, you know, he has to be out there, so his face is already known. Just, just um, not not to cut you off, but something you just said was actually mind-blowing because you don't want them to lose their jobs let's not forget these are regular people they have jobs right they're exactly. they're you know they're waiters they're they're cooks they're police officers they're firemen exactly. they're construction workers they're in our community it's not like they're just living within the kkk all day every day they right. meet what you know weekly monthly what yeah. have you and then they go back out into the real world clansman is just a it's just a title like boy scout leader you have to have a real job wow mortgage Okay, so, um, so you know, they understood that. They said, okay, fine. So no and, filming of the faces. Right, uh, of, of, the, of the members. So, uh, they, you know, they didn't film the faces. And um, I walked down the aisle and gave her away. And uh, uh, so that was seen all over the world on CNN. And um, that, of course, caused a major ripple in, in, in clandom, if you will, and he, he and she began receiving hate mail, calling her calling her and, and he a uh, a race traitor. How can you let a nigger come to your wedding? And that da, da da da. I even kissed her on the cheek when I gave her away. Um, you know that that was just mind blowing for a lot of people, not only in the clan but also outside of the clan. And uh, so that was a good thing because it was kind of a bittersweet thing for him because here he is a clan leader. And now all the hate that he was radiating out was now coming back at him. Ooh. All because a black guy had had hair on his arm and walked down the aisle. So now he's he's seeing the reflection, the mirror, you know, and that gives him pause for thought, like, wow, is this really what I want to be involved in? Like, so, I'm used to giving so much hate, now I'm receiving it. This is what yeah, it feels like. It the shoes on the other foot. 
that's what I mean, but to use your word, sparking something, okay? And, you know, it takes a while. In this case, it took a year, almost a year. Like I said, from, from August 2017, he got married in July of, of 2018. So almost a year, you know, one month short of a year. Um, but you know what? That's, if, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But, but consider it this way. He had this hatred and rage in him for many, many years. All right? So if it can all go away within one year, that's a short period of time. Right. You had right. once said that, um, I, I don't want to misquote you, you, you had said, uh, you know, things don't happen overnight, and you pointed to this fine figure of yours right here, and you said, I want to lose, uh, I want to lose it, you know, lose some weight, right? Uh, and I'm, but I know I'm not going to lose it tomorrow, but if I work on it over time, it'll shrink down. Is that basically what that story was right there? Yeah, that, that, that reflects that story, absolutely. But I mean, there, there are other ones similar in the plan, you know, like Roger Kelly. Uh, becoming an imperial wizard, he had a wide following, giving it up. And not only not only did he did he give up the ideology, he did not turn his clan over to his second in command. He shut it down. He shut down his group. Wow, it's a big difference between just you know saying hey I don't believe it anymore. You go ahead and take it over. No, he said you know what this ends here. The um, speaking of shutting it down. Um, I believe you had met with the the representative of the Southern Poverty Law Center, mm-hmm. and Who they had like me? they what's that? Who does not like me? Does not <laughs> like you? No, I don't think so. Okay, so that's my question, Mayor. He says that basically they have a wholesale strategy to ending yeah. racism in the KKK, while yours is a retail strategy. Yeah. Um, what do you think is more effective and to, to, you know, not to put words in your mouth, why does it, do you think he likes you? You guys have the same agenda. Explain that wholesale retail strategy and why well, someone with the same agenda would not like you. Well, same thing with the uh, BLM guys in the movie. Uh, we have the same agenda, you know, more or less to, to, to do away with racism. Um, but uh, we have different methods of, of doing it. And this is what we have to learn. You know, racism is multifaceted, and there and there's no there's no one one size fits all uh, method of of, uh, of of diminishing it. You know, there there are many different aspects that we have to address. We have to we, we do things my way, we do things their way. But what, what's important is that we coordinate our efforts. You do what you specialize in. What he um, what he specializes in, the guy from the Southern Public Law Center. He specializes in the legal uh, aspect of it. Mm-hmm. What can I do to, to legally compel them to do something? I'm going to hit them in the wallet by suing them and making them you know, give up all kinds of money and give up their charter and give up their buildings and whatever else. And that, that will bring them down. Yes, that, that is effective. It also brings more resentment and more anger. And all they do is simply rebrand and come out more ferociously because now they've been hurt. Um, what I try to do is try to make them think, you know what, there's a better way and, and you can have a better life, you know, because hate is exhausting, you know, and you, all you're doing is just exhausting yourself, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, um, well, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better to, to have somebody come to their own conclusion, I've been wrong, I need to change, rather than, you know, make me change by, 
but it cost me my job and cost me all kinds of money. Hmm. Yes, people need to be punished for things they do when they hurt somebody else. So yes, they should be punished. Um, but we also have to, to help somebody reform their ways, sort of like the difference between a reformatory and a prison. Prison does not reform. Prison only penalizes. That's why, that's why in this country, we have a high rate of recidivism. And so we know that. We've known that for hundreds of years, you know, because you send somebody to prison, uh, you hope that the time spent in there, they will think about what they're doing. And then when they're released, you know, they won't want to come back. Uh, but but uh, reality proves that chances are they will come back. You know, there are those who, who, who go there once and now they laugh not for me, I'm gonna walk the straight and narrow. And they walk the straight and narrow fine, but uh, but there is a, a higher rate of recidivism in this country than anywhere else. And that's because we don't reform them in prison. Hmm. And, and, and when, you've, when you've seen that for, for decades, you begin to wonder, why is there no reform in prison? Well, you know why? Because somebody's making money. And the more people come back, the more money you make. Wow. It's the money like play. The, yeah, it's sort of like the uh, the pharmaceutical companies. We know there are cures out there, but if I cure some disease, nobody's gonna be buying my medicine anymore. Man, Daryl, that's some powerful stuff right there. But, but you know it's true. Of course. You know, I think the uh, United States has 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. Does that stat make sense to you? Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but yes. The analogy makes sense. Yes, absolutely. It's crazy. It's a uh, but it's yeah, a but see, but see, we're, we're based on a society uh, of money and greed. You know, how much money can I make, even if I have to make it off off of somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and not help them? Yeah, I'm helping myself. But you're very you know? pro-American. I've gotten that stance from absolutely. you. Absolutely, you're very pro-American. But, yes, I am, and which is why I'm doing this. But uh, it, it's where I live. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I also am willing to admit. Uh, the faults of our country. You know, we, uh, we, we all have history, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the shameful, and it all needs to be displayed. And those things that, that reflect negatively need to be addressed. We cannot change our history. We cannot change what we've done, mm-hmm. but we can take where we are and change our future. You said- We can, um, we can make up for past mistakes. You said that, um... To, to recap what you said, that yes, um, part of our history is shameful, um, but you don't burn our history down regardless of how good or bad or ugly it is. KKK, the KKK is as American as baseball, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Chevrolet is an ugly part of our history, but yes, it is American. It was created right here. It was born and bred and still exists. It's an American institution. It's an ugly institution, but that's what it is. And so... You know, we need to learn from it. Why do we have the uh, the Holocaust Museum? Should we just destroy that? Because the Holocaust ended in 1945, and let's not talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. No, because it's bound to repeat itself if you don't. Let's learn from what happened at the Holocaust. So that is never repeated, wow. not even 100 years from now. The um, Have you ever seen my father, who grew up in Detroit, and my grandparents also in Detroit, they used to tell me they would see signs that said, no blacks, no Jews, no dogs. Yeah. You've yeah. seen this before growing up I ever? Seen, I, I haven't seen the actual signs, but I've seen pictures of them, yes. Yeah. And I tell you what, uh, 
1993 uh, during the first Gulf War, right? I played at a place in Baltimore uh, with a friend of mine, and um, it was his gig. And uh, he he needed a piano player, so I went up there. I was off that night, went up there. And, um, you know, usually you load in the back door of a place because you're bringing in equipment and stuff. Um, so I pulled in the back parking lot, came through the back door, the stage is right there, and I put my keyboard there and whatever else. And, um, you know, played the gig. And uh, I, I had not seen the front of the place uh, other than from the stage. So on break, I went, it was hot in there. I went outside, I walked up the front door, and, um, you know, I'm hanging out on the sidewalk, just getting some fresh air or whatever. And then when it's time to go back in, I, I go to go back in. And right there on the front door is a sign, a piece of paper somebody had written on there, the, the management. Um, uh, no, uh, uh, no, no shirts, no, 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 uh, no shoes, um, no sand monkeys. No service. Yeah. 1993. 1993. This is where we're at. Uh, You're very pro-American. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on capitalism? When done in moderation, it has its values. Uh, When done to excess, it becomes greed. It becomes uh, self-destructive in the long run. It's all about, you know, what, you know, what can I get for myself? The bigger, the better. And that's not always the case, you know? We know everything you know, needs to be in moderation. How, how is what I believe in going to affect everybody else as opposed to how is what I believe in gonna, gonna benefit just me and my family? Interesting. Um, you, incurred, you, you had mentioned, um, you know, speaking outside of the United States now, traveling. Uh, you said you had been to 57 countries, six continents, I assume the one continent you have not been to is Antarctica, but I truly believe if there are racist uh, whales or uh, seals in uh, Antarctica, you would have a heart to heart with them and listen to them and change their hearts and minds. Um, So you you can't have racist penguins because they're they're like black and white together. Imagine if there's some racist penguins, they're self-doubting, they don't know what's going on. Um, But um, hate is exhausting, for sure. Why is traveling so important? Okay, that takes me to my favorite quote of all time. Hmm. And it's by Mark Twain, otherwise known by his real name of Samuel, Samuel Clemens. And it's called the travel quote by Mark Twain. And no truer words have ever been spoken. What Mark Twain said was, travel is fatal to prejudice, prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Hmm. And that is so true. And I I have benefited so much uh, from traveling and seeing different people. And you know, and here's the thing with us as Americans, everywhere I go, um, I won't say everybody, but a lot of other people are bilingual, trilingual, and even speak four languages. My, my dad spoke nine wow. languages. Yeah. Uh, but most Americans only speak one language, English, that's it, you know? And unfortunately, most Americans do not travel. 
In fact, less than 50% of Americans have their passport. Um, Europeans travel all the time. They're always going somewhere. And, and most of them, not all of them, of course, but most of them, especially in, uh, in urban cities, uh, speak more than one language. So, you know, in, in Europe, most, uh, most people in the urban cities uh, are bilingual. They speak another language. Uh, and, you know, if you're out in the rural parts of the country, they speak their national language and perhaps a dialect, hmm. something like that. But most Americans only speak English, you know, and it, it's hindering, you know, when you want to travel. But I realize that, that most Americans, black or white, uh, have not had the travel experience that I've had. Mm-hmm. That does not make me a better person than anybody else. It simply makes, gives me a broader perspective of course. than most people. Would you right. say that most uh, KKK members have never been out of the United States? Yes, most of them mm-hmm. have not. Uh, some have been through the military, things like that. And, and, and a lot of them don't even travel in their own country, let alone their own state. You know? Yeah, it, 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 it bubble, homogenous. You know, go see your country. Go to the Grand Canyon, you know, go see the Lincoln Memorial, you know, go do something. Um, and, you know, America. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you, you're going to be pro-America, but yet, but yet you won't leave, leave your little town in your state. Hmm. You know, as an American, this is all your country, and we're all your people. Get to know us, you know. Uh, so, that, you know, that's the ignorance. And, and here's another thing that's ignorant. Um, we talk about, you know, a big thing right now is the Confederacy. It's always been big in, the, in their, you know, in their minds. But here, here's what what you might find very, very funny, comical, uh, is the Klan in the Southern states. Oh man, they're all about that Confederate flag and the Confederate monuments. You know, that's my heritage. My great great grandfather, you know, fought in the, in the in the Confederacy. But guess what? So did mine. Because anybody who knows American history knows there were plenty of blacks that fought in the Confederacy because slaves had to fight for their slave masters. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, while I was born in Chicago, my parents are from Virginia and Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy. So my ancestors fought in the, my slave ancestors fought in the Confederacy. Now that does not mean that they honor the Confederacy or they honor slavery. You know, they had to, they were slaves. Um, But now here's the thing. So these people want to honor their great, great ancestors who fought in the Confederacy whatever. The clans in the northern states, they don't fly the Confederate flag because they won't honor the Confederacy because they had uh, their, their, their grand ancestors fought in the Union and they were killed by people in the Confederacy. Hmm. So why am I going to honor the Confederacy? Right? So even though they have the same agenda, anti-black, anti-Jewish, anti-whatever, uh, they're anti-each other when it comes to the Confederacy. So do they butt heads regarding that? Is that something that, cer- do clans, do certain yes, clan members yes. fight over certain things? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and he, here's the interesting thing, you know, when you hate somebody else, you basically hate yourself. Uh, clan groups are, are all rivals with one another. Sometimes they try to put together a confederation of, of clan groups, but it, it doesn't last very long. Hmm. In the beginning, there was one clan one clan and chapters of that clan spread all over the place. Today, there is no such thing as the Ku Klux Klan. There are many Ku Klux Klan groups. It's a decentralized organization. Gotcha. Because of all the infighting 
And, you know, you know, we're the real clan. You know, that's a wannabe clan. You know, that's a clan that lets black people come to their wedding. You know, that kind of thing. The clan is decentralized, kind of like how you said on the BLM was decentralized. Yeah. Well, BLM Dif- is, not, is not an organization. Mm-hmm. It's a movement. You know, you don't you don't pay dues to it, you know, and all that kind of, you know. That kind gotcha. of thing. Now, uh, speaking of, of those guys uh, from the movie, you know, a year later, they reached out to me and we got together and made amends. Um, but, the uh, members of BLM you're talking about? Yeah, the ones in the movie. Wow. The, the two young guys. Movie. Yeah. Well, well, one of the two young guys couldn't couldn't make the dinner, hmm. uh, but the other one did. And, and the older guy. And we got together, we had dinner, and, and we talked, and we agreed to work together. And, uh, and we you know, patched up the differences. And then um, just late last year, uh, the older guy fell off the wagon again and, and reverted it back to, to his former self. Hmm. And why was that? What, what happened with that gentleman? Or why would someone, you know, consider changing and then fall back? And what is that? Ignorance. You know, just couldn't handle it. It all comes down to respect and a willingness to listen. Those are the keys. Yes. Did I say that right? You did. Uh, I don't respect what you are saying, but I respect your right to say them. Correct. These are Daryl Davis quotes, ladies and gentlemen. I know you're very big on face-to-face. You've actually said you can't know the real me through Facebook or through email or on a phone call. you got to sit across from somebody, and meeting someone is very essential. You know, well, it's like, you know, you know, going on dating sites or, or meeting somebody in person, you know? Yeah. So now with today, everything digital, we're on Zoom right now, COVID, we can't meet up. How has that changed or impacted what you do? Physically, it's impacted me because as a musician, as a lecturer, I'm always on the road. I'm always traveling, going somewhere to perform or to, or to speak. And at this point in time, so, you know, it, it was very unsettling. You know, it's like my, my feet are moving around, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm in my house. And uh, I have not been in at home this many consecutive days in a row since I was a kid living with my parents or something. <laughs> um, you know, that's how much I traveled. And so it, it's definitely been a change, but I've been productive. I finished writing my second book. I started my own podcast, not as extensive as yours or anybody else's, but just something that I thought I would do. I've interviewed a lot of interesting people that I've met over the years in my life, musicians, white supremacists, psychologists, you know, whatever, Rwandan genocide survivors, people like that. And um, I'm learning to use, uh, you know, modern technology like we're doing right now. Yes, we are. Uh, I'm I'm by no means a Zoom expert, but um, I've I've learned how to use it to a tool as a tool to my benefit. And like I said, the in-person thing is very important, but this is the next best thing to it. It's better than email because you can't tell someone's tone through email. Right. You know? And I, I can look at you, I can hear your tone, I can see your body language. So you know, I can't reach out and shake your hand, but I do have a sense of getting to know you. And, and one day, perhaps we'll meet in person and, and I'll feel like I do know this guy. Yeah. I feel like I can get a good bear hug out of you, man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's do a little rapid fire and then we can kind of wrap up. So I'm just going to throw out a couple words or phrases and just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. It doesn't necessarily need to be in a word or two, um, but just sort of rapid fire. Let me know your thoughts on this. We talked about BLM. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say BLM? Disorganized. Disorganized. Protests. Valuable. Rioters. 
um, discipline. Kneeling for the flag. Positive. Positive. Cancel culture. Negative. Removing statues. Positive. Removing Confederate flags. Positive. Renaming forts and bases that are named after Confederate soldiers. Positive. Police shootings. Better investigations. Defunding the police. Depending upon the department and how it's defunded. Hmm. Could be it could be a positive thing. Systematic racism. Needs to be eradicated. The use of the N-word. Needs to be eradicated. What about when black people use the N-word? Needs to be eradicated. So you want the N-word out? Yes. Um, a couple people. Uh, Christopher Columbus. Statues need to come down, need to tell the truth about Columbus. Hmm. MLK. Positive. Very positive. Very positive. You David imagine. Duke. Negative. Barack Obama. Um, agent of change. Donald Trump. Agent of divide, of divisiveness. Joe Biden. Wait and see. Wait and see. Um, first person that comes to mind that I give you the opportunity to say a name, who comes to mind? Uh, evil Knievel. <laughs> evil Knievel, why Evil Knievel? Uh, he's one of my heroes, one of my many heroes. Evil Knievel, why is that? Because he is one man, you know, they say you cannot cheat death. Uh, you know, death takes you on its own terms. Evil Knievel cheated death many times. Evil Knievel died on his own terms. He should have been dead a thousand times over all the crazy stunts that he did. Hmm. But death could never take him. He died of natural causes. Even though he broke every bone in his body, wow. he should have died you know, crashing on his motorcycle way up in the air, jumping over cars and trucks and, and canyons and stuff. Um, he didn't die. He died when he wanted to die of natural causes. He lived evil. out his life. Evil can so he death. He's my hero. Uh, other than Chuck Berry, favorite musician? Elvis Presley, Pine Top Perkins, Johnny Johnson, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. Hip-hop in America today. Fine when it spreads positive messages. Favorite hip hop artist? Don't have one. Zero. No, not, not that I not, not that I dislike it. It's mm -hmm. not something that, that I that I follow a great deal. So you don't listen to hip hop. Gotcha. Well, I listen to it, but I don't really have a favorite artist or who comes to mind when I say hip hop? Um what's her name? Lauren um uh, Lauren Hill? Lauren Hill. Respect, Fuji's. Ooh la la la. Mm -hmm. You know that song? Okay. Um, more likely to get along, blacks and whites or Democrats and Republicans? Blacks and whites.
what needs to be done to make uh, Democrats and Republicans come together? If you could, you sit down and you bridge the gap between the KKK and a black person and black American, what needs to be done with Republicans and Democrats these days? Tell the truth on both sides. Stop politicizing and, and don't, you know, don't be afraid to break loyalty when something is wrong in your own party. Hmm. Your most racist experience in the last decade? Every time I meet a Klan member. <laughs> Every time? Yeah, sure. I mean, why, why else are they in the Klan? They're racist. There's nothing that comes to mind like that was, another. damn, ridiculously racist. Oh, I mean, you know, I, I've had, you know, fist fights and things like that. You've had fist fights? Oh, plenty of times, yeah. With Klan yeah. members? I have. You versus there. one Klan member or you versus multiple Klan members? Both. Both. I wow. Put in the, I put people in the hospital. I put people in jail. Wow. Yeah. Now, now, fortunately, you know, those instances are few and far between. But I beat them on the street and I beat them in court. Um, how often have you feared for your life? Many times, but not as many as as I probably should have. Wow. There's that evil Knievel quality within you. <laughs> Interesting. Um, if, you believe, you know, if you believe in something, you're going to put yourself out there. The difference between ignorance and stupidity. Um, knowledge that changes you and having knowledge that you refuse to use. Hmm. What frustrates you most? Lack of exposure. How do you mean by that? People are not willing to expose themselves to things uh, with which they are unfamiliar. That goes back to the traveling, yes. um, what we talked about. Yeah. What shocks you the most? That people who see the light um, don't believe in it. Some people, some people don't believe that water is wet unless you drown them in it, and even then, they have their doubts. <laughs> Damn, Daryl. How deep? Yeah, that's stupidity. How deep? Yeah. Wow. How deep is that water? <laughs> How deep is Daryl? Depends upon who you ask. <laughs> is Daryl a romantic? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I like to think so. <laughs> You're like, yeah, baby, Barry White in the house, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, is there anything that offends you? Yes, racism offends me, which is why I've, I've you know, divided my, my music career. Listen, I would much be, rather be on the stage playing rock and roll and seeing people out there dancing and shaking to, to my sounds, mm -hmm. to my music, rather than be at some Klan rally watching them, you know, light a cross on fire and proclaim white supremacy. Got it. But, but uh, you know, I, I'm offended that this is happening in my country where there was a time when we could travel, and we Americans could travel anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, and we were revered. And today we are the laughingstock of the world. Why do you think Not that is? Uh, for, for our behavior and for our current leadership. A couple more, and then we can wrap up, Mr. Davis. Um, if you could go back in mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. and change something or someone, what would that be? If I could change something, I would try to incorporate more of people's history. 
being taught in schools, uh, all Americans' history being taught in schools hmm. and not just relegated to one month, but put it under the uh, general curriculum of American history, not American history and black history. Gotcha. Black history is American history is what you're it saying. It is. Just like you say, Confederate history this is, is part of American history. history. Yeah. And, and when you finish the rapid fire, I, I want to say something about, about Confederate history. Say it right now. Okay. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, well, two, two things, uh, the N-word and, um, and, and you know, what, what I think about taking down Confederate monuments and flags. Okay, the N-word uh, is offensive. Okay. And he said, you know, uh, is it offensive when black people use it? Yes, it should be eradicated there, too. Now, I often hear the question, well, how come, um, you know, you all get offended when white people use it, but, but you use it against your, against your own kind, too? Well, here's the difference. I'm not justifying its use. Nobody should insult anybody. Um, but, but here is the difference. Uh, if, if you and your brother are having an argument, and you know, like as siblings do, and, um, and your brother calls you an SOB, it's a moot point. Because if you're an SOB, what is he? You got the same, you got the same mother. So it's, it's, it's null and void. So if somebody calls me, if somebody black calls me the N-word, well, what is he? It's, you know, the old cliche, the pot calling the kettle black. Gotcha. It's a moot point. But if I'm not your brother and I call you an SOB, I've just insulted your mother mm -hmm. and you're going to knock my teeth out. So if somebody who's, who's not black is calling me an SOB, I mean, uh, uh, an N-word, it's a lot more offensive than mm -hmm. somebody who looks like me. Makes sense. So it shouldn't it shouldn't be done at all. Now so, I'll, I'll tell you. You know the um, uh, he passed away um, a few years ago, a couple years ago. The uh, activist comedian Dick Gregory. Of course, Dick Gregory. Yeah, gray beard, very funny he, man, uh, very serious I, I man. Knew, yep, I you knew, knew probably knew him before he had the gray beard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Well, he was, and uh, he passed away. But uh, he and I uh, participated in a lot of protests together. Um, he told me a story one time that, you, that you'll appreciate. The the uh, Rolling Stones were coming to my hometown, Chicago, and uh, of course, you know they don't have to advertise in advance. They can advertise the night before the concert, and the whole arena. People are going to show up to see the Rolling Stones. Exactly. Right. And so back then, it's like in the eighties or something. Um, back then, you know, you couldn't get tickets online. There was no online. You had to go to Ticketron or Ticketmaster. And, and people would camp out the night before, make a big line all the way around the block to get in that door to head company to go to Ticket Ticketron and get their tickets and at the, at the mall or whatever. And so there had been an announcement, you know, that the, the stones were coming. And so people, you know, took off work and went, went out there and you know, camped out on the sidewalk, spent the night out there, and, you know, to wait till the next morning to be the first to get in that door and get front row tickets or whatever. And so big, long line. You know, morning came, it's almost time for the for the mall to open. And this uh, black guy pulls up in this car along the street to the sidewalk, a big long line. And he pulls up right by the front door. He gets out and he walks through the front of the line. And these guys who've been there all night, oh, no, 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 no. Line's back there, buddy. And I, you know, just move him back. And he comes forward again. And this time they called him the N-word and picked him up and carried him 
over to, to the tarp, to the to the street. The, it looks right in the mall by the side. But they had the sidewalk and said, you stupid N-word, the line is back there, and threw him out in the street. He got up, brushed himself off, got inside his car, started his car back up. Then he got out of the car, and he said to them, you know, you can call me stupid, and you can call me the N-word, but I'm the stupid N-word that has the keys to let you all in that car. <laughs> With that, he got back inside his car and drove to the end of the line on the other side of the mall and opened that door first. So all the people that at the end of the line got to go get their tickets first. Wow. Yeah. What's um, the message with that? You better watch who you call the N-word. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't use it at all, right? Agreed. So, you know, um, you know, with, without even seeing why he was, uh, you know, they, they, they perceived him to be jumping the line. Yeah, not realizing he's a maintenance guy. Buddy, he's with, he's getting you in. He's getting you in. Now, now, he he, he could have opened any door in the mall, and because you spent the night there the longest, he's going to open your door first. But you jumped to the conclusion without realizing, and you all called him an n-word and threw him out in the street. Okay. So anyway, uh, so yeah, that that word should not be used by anybody. And and, and I I uh, I chided black people for even using. If you're not going to insult somebody else outside of your race, why do you want to insult somebody in your race? I listen to a lot of hip hop. You know, I listen to a lot of music. Obviously, we've talked yeah. about, you know, Jackie Wilson being my favorite artist. We talk about yeah. all different sorts of music. But you hear the, you know, using the N-word, which, you know, nobody should use. But they say, well, it's not the with the hard R, but with an A at the end. You've heard yeah. this? Yeah, I've heard all that. Is it, What are your thoughts on, like... Cause you hear it in all the rap songs, da 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 da, da. but it's with an yeah, A at the end, not an E R. Yeah, but listen, why, why don't I why don't I just say, hey, hey, you N word, and, and instead of saying, you know, with E R at the end, why, why, why would you say N word? The same it, meaning. I mean, yeah, same meaning. Okay, so if I said, you know, this is a crock of bull spit, I think we know what you mean about exactly. It. Exactly. So what's the point? It's, it, it has the same implication. The word needs to so, go. The word needs to go. Okay, so the, the Confederate uh, monuments and flags. Let's talk about that for, for a second. Yes. Here's the thing. We went to war against, well, let's put it this way. Most, most white Americans in this country are of British descent. They were the first ones to, to come to these shores, right? The Puritans, so, pilgrims. The Puritans, pilgrims, and all that, Captain John Smith and all those people. All right, uh, and, and he had an affair with Pocahontas. <laughs> he likes okay. some dark meat. Hey, yeah, you got it. So, <laughs> um, uh, leg man instead of breast man. <laughs> right. So, the majority of, of, of white Americans are of British descent. Um, we went to war against against uh, Great Britain, and many Americans have ancestry that fought in that Revolutionary War. Right. And we beat Great Britain, which is why two months ago, we celebrated in this country called the 4th of July, mm -hmm. Independence Day, right? Now, do these Americans who have British ancestry who fought against us, do they honor Great Britain by building statues out here of King George III no. and flying the Union Jack? No. The winner does not get to build his statues or fly his flags on the winner's land. 
On December 7, 1941, we were bombed in Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. We went to war against Japan. There are plenty of Japanese Americans in this country that are as American as anybody else. And we beat Japan. They have ancestors who fought against us. Do they, and, and of course they honor their ancestors and may not approve of the war, but they don't get out here and build statues to Emperor Hirohito and fly the Japanese flag. Mm -hmm. We went to war against Germany. There are tons of German Americans or Americans of German descent in this country. And you know they had ancestry that fought in the Third Reich. They had to because their leader was a dictator. You either honored him or you were exterminated unless you escaped to Poland or somewhere. All right? So do these German-Americans um, build statues of Joseph Goebbels or Adolf Hitler out here and fly swastikas? No, not unless they're neo-Nazis or something. All right? We beat Germany. The, win the loser does not get to fly his flag or build his statues on the winner's property. Guess what? The Confederacy lost the war. They need to get over it. They don't need to build their statues or fly their flags. This is the United States of America, not the Confederate States of America, the CSA. Right? The Confederacy lost. Now, should the statues be ripped down and destroyed? No. They should be taken down and placed in a, in a museum or build a Confederate memorial park and place them there. And people who want to go and honor those statues and flags, go do so as part of our history put them there, but they do not represent this country. Those states that, that fought against the Union were seditionists. They were, they were traitors. They, they tried to, they, they, they created civil unrest to destroy the unity of this country. We are the United States. Mm -hmm. There should only be one flag. You, you, you speak with somebody and they'll say, well, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. Okay. Yeah, the states' right to own a slave. That's what states' rights means. Right. You know, it's our right to do what we want to do. If we want to own slaves, we're going to own slaves. States' yeah, rights to that's... own slaves. So it's like exactly. two parts to that. The slavery is a part of it. So it's... Uh... it's the state, the slavery was the biggest part of it mm -hmm. because the people... And the, listen, you, you've heard the term, you know, she comes from old money or he comes from old money. Right. We well, you know what old money is, right? Old money is the money that came off plantations way back then. People picking cotton, picking tobacco. Picked that stuff. Slaves, slaves picked that stuff. Hmm. The white people weren't weren't working. They they weren't paying those slaves. They were making all the money from free labor. That's why the Civil War was fought to free the slaves. So now, if you if you're going to free these people, how are you going to make money? You were making money for uh, for free. You've heard the term "money doesn't grow on trees." Yeah, in those days, money did grow on trees because you didn't have to work for it. You had slaves doing your work for you, and you weren't paying them, and all you were doing was just getting money. So you had a money tree in your, in, in, you would say today, in your backyard, but back in those days, you say you had a money tree on my plantation, hmm. you know? And when, and when somebody would say, uh, you, you, you might be too young to remember this expression, but something like, it's none of your cotton-picking business. Of course I and remember that, yeah. Yeah, well, where does that come from? As, as, as Clearly, another your cotton-picking business, right. Right, yeah. What was the cotton-picking business? Right, the slaves, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's a derogatory statement. Wow. Um, you know, he comes from the wrong side of the tracks. Well, that's the black side of the tracks in the South because it 
railroad tracks divided the white side of town to the black side of town. Mm. So the wrong side of the tracks were the black side of the tracks. Gotcha. You know? Um, so yes, you know, so these people were fighting because their income was going to be impacted if slavery were to end. They made tons of money off of cotton. All your clothes were made out of cotton back then. They didn't have polyester. You know, and of course, tobacco was a big thing. Still is a big thing. You know, I mean, how, how long has it been since uh, you couldn't smoke in public places? Just a few years, right? Yeah, maybe 10 you know, years ago. Things, you know, maybe 15 years ago or whatever. Um, but up, up until then, tobacco was a big thing, man. Tons of money. That is old money. Old money comes from plantations. Hmm. New money comes from Silicon Valley. All right? So the war was fought over slavery. And in and, 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 and history books, uh, in the North, they teach, you know, it was about slavery. In the South, no, 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 it's about states' rights. You know, yeah, the states' rights to own a slave. There's a part B to that. Yeah. <laughs> Respect. That was that was really the, the rapid fire. Thank you for kind of digging deeper on those two topics. Can we you know, do... People, I, I want to say one more thing. You know, people say, no, no, it's not, you know, that flag is not about eight. You know, it's about heritage. Well, first of all, the Confederate flag is not what most people think it is. The Confederate flag is a different flag than the one that you see with the cross and the stars and, and, and things. Uh, that was the battle flag of the Confederacy. Hmm. That's the flag they went to war with to defend slavery, that they are, that they are misnaming the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag was a little bit different. Um, that battle flag is what people call the Confederate flag. That, that was the flag that fought for slavery and the state's rights to own slaves. Um, but and when you say, you know, no, no, it's not about hate, it's about heritage. Listen, the South has a lot to be proud of, a whole lot to be proud of. A lot of good things came out of the South. Slavery was not one of them, all right? And if you think that flag represents your heritage, all you have to do is go on Google, if you don't want to go to one physically, go on Google and just Google Klan rally, KKK rally, and click on images. You see all these images, people in robes and hoods holding Confederate flags. Now, you call that a hate group, you say, oh, I'm not associated with that. Those are hate groups, hate, hate people, I don't hate people. Well, if that's a hate group and they're flying your flag, your heritage flag, they're flying it because it represents hate. And in Berlin, uh, well, Berlin and, and Munich and others in Germany, today the swastika is banned. You cannot fly the swastika in Germany. You can't even fly it privately. Privately, you can't even do it. You will go to jail. So guess what? The, uh, the the neo Nazis over there use in place of the swastika, they use our Confederate flag. Get out of here! That's that. what they use there. Yeah, you see neo Nazis in Germany walking down the street with Confederate flags because to them it's the symbol of white supremacy, just like it is here too. All right, mm -hmm. but the people say no, 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 it's, it's about heritage. All right, so my thing is this: go to a Klan rally with me, and if you see somebody flying a Confederate flag, I want you to go to that person in the Robin Hood with the Confederate flag and tell them, that's not what it stands for, give me back my flag. Whether they give it back to you or not, if you do that, I will come to your house and I will take your Confederate flag and I will hoist it up your flagpole for you. <laughs> I have yet to have any takers come. Nobody's doing that. While we're on that topic, if you took me to a Klan rally, mm -hmm. right? What would happen? Um, You'd probably be called a race traitor because uh, you're there with me, mm -hmm. and 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 you're not standing uh, with them, or for them. Erasure. Now, if they now if they find out that I'm Jewish, now what? 
uh, you are you are the biggest problem. You you you're in a bigger problem than black people. Jewish people are a bigger problem than black people, according yeah. to the KKK. And that, that that changed. Uh, it started to change in the late fifties, and and it began changing uh, throughout the sixties because uh, uh, what, what they consider uh, the biggest problem is, is are the Jews. They call it Zog, Z O G, which stands for Zionist Occupied Government, Zog, and they came to the conclusion that, uh, and this this is um, the white all white supremacists, neo Nazis, Klan, whatever, that uh, Jews are are running the media, uh, they own all the TV stations, all the newspapers, they they own the banking system, and all these things. And it's, it's jealousy because because they were too dumb to, to to do it themselves or whatever, and, and Jewish people figured out how to how to create a a, a valuable and, and a viable backing system. Uh, surely they they do they do run a lot of media, etc. That's what they do, you know. But because these people didn't have the the brain cells to do it themselves or whatever, they're envious, they're jealous, and so those people who run the media. Uh, black people are now the pawns of the Jews. That's what they think in their mind. Hmm. Jews run everything, and, and we are the pawns. It's like, it's like the drug lord and the dealers on the streets. So if I if I came and 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 met with a KKK member, like with you, you're saying if the two of us sat down, Daryl and Adam, we're gonna go meet some KKK members. You would say that they would hate me more than they hate you. Yeah, because because your people control my people. Don't forget, we're we're not we're not smart. Our, our brains are small, hmm. but, you know. But you figured out ways to connive and and do all kinds of things to get in control, because J- Jews are a race. They're not a religion. They're a race, mm-hmm. according to these people. All right. Gotcha. So 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 your race uh, uh, is in a position that they are not in. They should be the ones controlling the media, the radio, the TV stations, the movie, the movies, uh, the media, and, and and the banks. You know. But the Jews, you know, you know that you know that race has somehow slipped by. Hitler was right. And when you see them marching down the street, they're talking about, uh, in their megaphones, six million was not enough. That's why That's why they have Holocaust deniers. It's, it's that jealousy thing. Hmm. It's that so, Zog, as they put it. Zog. So they must have really, really hated Sammy Davis Jr., a black Jew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, maybe one of these days I go with you to a clan rally, and, okay. and uh, that. I'll shave. I'll put on a different hat. Yeah, I'll, okay. I won't look as <laughs> as Jewy. We'll see where it yeah. goes. Man, this has been this has been incredible. Um, what are your long term goals? I mean, you're in the thick of things right now. Where do you see you're 62? I want to say, I am. right? You're going to be with us for a handful of more decades, right? Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, what are your long-term goals? Where would you like to see everything that you've done? Where would you like it to lead to? I'd like it to lead to more people taking my my template and improving upon it. I know it can be improved because um, you know I'm not the uh, begin-all, end-all. Uh, there's always room for improvement, and I've done and I'm doing you know what I'm what I believe I'm capable of doing. But I know there are people out there who can take it. And, and build upon it and, and improve it. And I hope you know, it, it will inspire more people to do so mm-hmm. and take it to even greater heights. What would you want your legacy to be? Uh, 
let's see. Rock and roll race reconciliator. <laughs> Rock and roll race reconciliator. Yeah. I like the ring of that. <laughs> I like R R R. R R R D D D and the R R R. I dig yes. it. Overall, what do you want to be known for? We talked about your legacy, the rock and roll race uh, reconciliator. What do you like when people think of Daryl Davis? You know, a hundred years from now, they Google Daryl Davis. Oh, he was that guy. That dot dot dot. You know, I mean, I, I'd rather be known. You know, musically. I mean, that's that's what makes people happy, and really? that's why I got into music to make people happy. So at the you end know, of the day, you consider yourself a musician who changes. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. You know, listen, let, let, let me tell you how, how I view it as a musician, okay? I, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, playing with, in other people's bands, uh, being their musical director or being a sideman. Like, you know, when I, when I play with Chuck, uh, for example, Barry, um, if, if um, I, sometimes I was in a position as musical director, I would have to rehearse whatever band he had and direct them you know, how, how to follow him, et cetera. Uh, other times... Um, you know, I, I, I'm just a side man, you know, in somebody's band, you know, they're the front person. I'm just playing backup piano for them, backup guitar or whatever. Uh, but as a band leader in my own band, I'm the front man, I'm the leader. And my job as a band leader is to bring a harmony between the voices on my stage, whether they are the instrumental voices, the piano, bass, drums, guitar, saxophone, whatever else I have in the band and, and the human voices, the singers. I, we want harmony. The only time that I want dissonance is when I interject it into the music intentionally, and that can be done for effect. Like I, I want to create a certain mood, so I, I put some some strange thing in there to joke the audience. That, you know, that's called a dissonance because it doesn't belong within, within the harmony of the music. Uh, if dissonance happens randomly and and not intentionally, then that's noise. Somebody hit a bad note. Or somebody sang out a tune. Somebody made a mistake you know, in, in what they were playing. With. That's where James Brown will knock you five bucks right there. That's right. And, and James Brown would make you rehearse until four o'clock in the morning. Even if one person made a mistake, the whole band has to come and rehearse Damn. until four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. God so exactly. He turned around and go like this, five bucks <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. That, that was a dissonance. So the only time you want dissonance is, is when, a, as a band leader, is when you intentionally inject it for effect. Hmm. All right. So, so I spend my time on stage trying to bring harmony between all my various voices, instrumental and vocal. Isn't it natural when I step off the stage, I'm done and I'm out in society? Don't I want harmony there too? Of course, I'm a band leader. My job is to bring harmony, whether it's on stage or off stage. Harmony. Yeah. Um, you're bringing harmony, you're, you're, you're causing these KKK members to completely change their lives, right? You're the spark plug that makes them say, what am I doing with my life? Uh, right. That must change you. How have you changed in this process? Well, I've changed in, in realizing that people can change because when I first went into this, the, the, you know, the change thing was, was not in my mind at all. Uh, you know, I had no reason to believe that these people are gonna change. All I wanted was to find out how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That's all I want to know. I want to write a book about it. I want to write a book about why you people think this way. Um, because as kids, you've heard it, I've heard it, everybody's heard it. 
A tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. So why would I believe that a Klansman would change his robe and hood? Right? So I'm, I'm not going in with the idea, you know, you need to give this up. Give me your robe. No, no, I just want to know why you hate myself. You know, and then we're going to shake hands, we're going to walk away, and you're going to continue dating, and I'm going to continue doing what I do. But um, what happened was people began changing. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm on to something here. I thought a tiger didn't change his stripes and a leopard didn't change his spots. But now a, change, a clansman is changing his robe and hood. And it, it happened again and again and again. So that's why I keep doing it. But I had made a mistake. My mistake was in believing that because a leopard did not change his spots and the clansman, I mean, a, a tiger did not change his stripes, that a clansman would not change his robe and hood. That's a mistake. Because what, what we have to understand is this. A leopard and a tiger are born with their uh, spots and stripes. A Klansman is not born with racism. That's a learned behavior. Mm. So what can be what, what can be learned can be unlearned. So that is true. A tiger cannot change its uh, stripes. A leopard cannot change its stripes. I mean, or vice versa, because right. they are born with those uh, with those things. Racism you're not born with. It's learned. So but a Klansman can change his robe. Yes, indeed. Wow. So, um, last thing. Um, are you optimistic about the future of race relations in the United States? I don't get involved in anything that I can't do. So, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we are in the best time of our lives right now. Okay? There's always going to, you know, anytime you have change... There's going to be upheaval because people are creatures of change. I mean, people people are creatures of habit, mm -hmm. and change disrupts them. All right. So yes, we're in the best time that, uh, in 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 the twenty since the twentieth century right now. Uh, and I say that because we're turning a page. Yeah, we turned a page with Rosa Parks. We turned a page with Dr. King throughout the sixties. We turned a page when Barack Obama went into the White House. Uh, today we're turning a page with these protests. Um, and and we're seeing more, you know, you, you think we're seeing a lot of division out there? Yes, there is a lot of division out there. Uh, that's because of the upheaval. People don't like the change. But what are we seeing different today than we've ever seen before? We, we've always had protests out in the streets saying, no justice, no peace. We want equality, enough's enough. We, we've heard those slogans for years decades, mm -hmm. back to the 60s and 50s, all right? But what are we seeing different today? Let me explain something to you. We are seeing the collect. we're seeing the results of the collective voice, all right? Black people, white people, have always been involved in our protests. Even back to the 50s with Rosa Parks, there, were, there was a smattering of white people who, 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 who saw, you know, this is right. I need to do, I need to, to, to support this. Um, in the Freedom Rides uh, in the 60s, trying to integrate the uh, bus stations in the South, white people took part in that. White people were beat just like black people by the Klan at the Birmingham uh, bus station because they were considered race traitors. They were supporting these black people. You know, they, they, they wanted one waiting room, not a black waiting room and a white waiting room, all that kind of stuff. They wanted to end segregation. Um, so we've always had some white people who participated with us. Black people did not put Barack Obama in the White House. 
it was white people who put him in the White House mm -hmm. because black people only make 12 percent of the of the U.S. population, and and not all 12 percent of us are eligible to vote either because we're not registered or we're underage or we're felons or whatever case may be that you know that you're not qualified to vote. All right, even if all 12 percent of black people in this country, including newborn babies, were able to vote, that still would not be enough. We still needed a great portion of white people to join us to get that man in the White House, right? 20 years ago, Barack Obama or any other black person could not have won the White House because the attitude was not there for enough white people to, to consider uh, voting for a black man. By 2008, there were enough white people where the attitude had changed, where they would say, you know, I like that guy's policies. Yeah, he's got my vote check. Right. So it took that number of white people to join in with us to get him in the White House. We could not have done it by ourselves, that collective force. All right. You look at the protests starting in the 60s or 50s, whatever. OK, we always saw a smattering of white people with us. Today, look at the protests. You see a mass of white people. And as a result, changes are happening a lot faster, all right? In the past, the, the establishment, that's, that's a polite word of saying the white power structure, all right? Uh, they look and they see the protest, it's nothing but a sea of black people with a few sprinkles of, of salt amongst the pepper, right? They're like this. They didn't want to hear what we had to say. They just shut us down, they didn't care. We can march all day, all year long. They don't care, all right? Now, when the, you know, it, back then, if, if a police officer were to be charged, let alone fired in those rare instances, it took months, months of investigation, this, that, and the other, and then maybe the guy would get fired and convicted. Today it's happening, boom, 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 like that. Within a week, the cops charged, he's fired, blah, blah, boom. What's the difference? Look at the protesters. The power structure, the establishment is seeing more and more people who look like them. So now they're pulling out the earplugs or they're putting in their hearing aids and they're listening. They're listening. They're like, oh, damn, you know, maybe we better reconsider this. And, you know, and so now change is happening. And while these protests in the wake of George Floyd and people are, are now understanding, listen, George Floyd was not was not an anomaly. We've had Thousands of George Floyds. Of course. This, yeah, this George Floyd is the straw that broke the camel's back. And coronavirus, of course, helped with that um, because people are not at work. They're at home. They're watching TV. They're seeing this unfold before them, and they have time to do some introspection and reflect on it. Whoa, whoa, this is wrong. Now I get it. Now I understand what, you know, what, uh, what they've been talking about all these years, about police brutality and blah, blah, blah. I need to get out there in the street and protest. You know, and despite the coronavirus being out there, these people are so committed to getting out there and protesting to do what's right. All right, so we see this big sea of white people that, again, there's that collective voice that gets things done. And while the protests were geared predominantly towards police misbehavior and police racial profiling and all that stuff, there has been a larger ripple effect than we've ever seen in this country. The ripple effect being 
NASCAR banning the Confederate flag, legislation to take down those statues, the state of Mississippi, of all places, taking the Confederate flag out of their flag. Mm-hmm. Whoever heard of such Mississippi? Right. They're doing it, you know? I remember I seeing the movie sure. Mississippi Burning. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and um, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's food products changing the labels. All kinds of things are happening. You know, more conversations about this. That's that ripple effect. What caused that ripple effect? That collective voice. So that's the key. People coming together and working together is what creates change a lot quicker than people working by themselves. And see, that's what I was trying to stress to those people in that movie, Accidental Courtesy. We need to work together. You do what you got to do for systemic racism. I do what I have to do for individuals. Let's let's cooperate and coordinate. You know, together we can beat this problem. But how are we going to beat it? Fighting each other. Stupid. That's what they weren't getting. And now we see how it works. Work together on the common problem. You know? And um, so that's what, you know, that's what we need to focus on. The collective voice. Like I said, talking at somebody, talking about somebody, and talking past somebody doesn't work. Talking with somebody is the key. Working together. Respect and a willingness to listen. And as you say, I'm going to use your quote. When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. It's when talking ceases, the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. Mm -hmm. Daryl Davis. (laughs) Uh, Any final thoughts that you would love people to understand? Or is there anything that I have not asked you that you would want people to know about you? Yeah, we'll consider this part one. Eventually, we're going to do part two. Hell yeah. I love it. Daryl Davis, thank you for being a part of Valuetainment. Hey, thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. You know, and it's people like you know, like you, who are not afraid to uh, to talk about these uh, these tough topics and things like that. Who are willing to put yourself on the line and take criticism for, for giving people like me a voice, things like that. Uh, you know, you, you are an agent of change, and these are the things you know that we need more people willing to have these conversations because these conversations should have been had decades ago. Had they been had decades ago. We wouldn't be in this situation right now, but we've been we've been sweeping it under the carpet, locking it in the closet, and it's become a pressure cooker. And so, you know, if you don't release that valve, you know what happens? It explodes. And we saw that explosion in Charlottesville. We're seeing it right now on, on the streets of Portland and, and wherever else. So it's it's the uh, the people like you are are our pressure cooker valves. You know that that release the steam. And, uh, and I really appreciate all the work that you do. Well, it's an honor even sitting down with you. Uh, everyone needs to see the movie. Um, Accidental Courtesy. Is that where you want people to, where do you want me to send people to? Where would you like people to see? Is there a uh, book they, that you want? They, yeah, they can go on uh, Amazon uh, or iTunes and get uh, Accidental Courtesy. Uh, also, I have my new book coming out. My, my, my first book, Clandestine Relationships, is out of print, but the new book will have all the information from the old book and uh, and new stuff as well. It will be called The Clan Whisperer. And, Clan uh, Whisperer. Yeah, it's, it's in the editing process right now, so it should be out in 2021. Okay. So everybody will read it. It is 36 years of my um, my encounters and uh, 
and my odyssey into the world of the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis and other white supremacists. Well, people. let's do a round two when that book is ready to be launched. You got it. And we'll have this Absolutely. conversation again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. The rock and roll race <laughs> reconciliator. Yeah. The infamous, the notorious Daryl Davis. <laughs> Triple D. Thank you. Thank you Thank for being you. a part of Valuetainment. Appreciate Take care. it. Bye-bye. What a powerful interview I just had with Daryl Davis. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more unique story than his. One thing that comes to mind in our interview, I asked him, in America today, who is more likely to get along, blacks and whites or Democrats and Republicans? He said, without a doubt, blacks and whites, which was A, encouraging to hear, but B, pretty sad to hear how politically divided we are in America today. One thing I would implore you to do is use his two ingredients for success with other people, respect and listening to others. Respect and a willingness to listen. With that being said, I would love to get your thoughts below. Please comment below. And if you have not seen Pat's interview with Thomas Jefferson descendant Lucian Trescott, check that out right here. And if you have not subscribed to the channel, please do so below. Thank you for watching, and we will see you next time.